We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Scared money don't make money, you know? Greetings, Gator Nation. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Alan Williams. I'm here with James DiVirgilio. We're ready to get you up to date on all the Gator stuff from this weekend. The tough, the bad, some of the good. Another loss for the Gators, but we're right here with you guys to process it all and talk about it. Everything we we saw, the stuff we liked, the stuff we didn't like. We're both a little horse here this weekend. James, how are you doing over there? I'm having a great time taking all these L's each week. <laughs> uh, you know, covering the team, diving deep, watching all the film. We had one of our really good friends get married this weekend. It was like a full-on palooza for three straight days. So hence the voice being gone. So that was that was fun. That was a nice reprieve from Florida everything. Basketball team takes an L. Football team takes an L. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we'll be here to help help you make sense of it all, at least as best as we possibly can. Yeah. Some things maybe just don't make sense, and, and we stab at them. But we shall see what we can come up with. As always, if you like the content on this pod, follow us on social media, sub to our YouTube channel for film reviews, and become a patron on Patreon, where you can support our efforts to bring you this type of content throughout the year with a dono. Shout out to B-Red for helping to produce this doc, although he took this week off, which B-Red was pretty untimely. Since you just heard that we were doing a Palooza yeah, come wedding on, special. You gotta anticipate our Palooza. Come on, brother. <laughs> and Kari, the commissioner, who is standing by the standing by the computer ready to edit the video when I send it to her on film review, which I haven't done yet because of said wedding Palooza. Uh, as always, shout out here to the GNFP Sammy and GNFP Java Discord, where if you want to join in the discussion on all things Florida football and other sports, hop in. The water's warm. Check out our merch where you can purchase some sweet gear that doesn't have a Florida Gator logo on it. So if you're feeling particularly disappointed in the Florida Gators, well, (laughs) great. We've got something for you. (laughs) And lastly, something that I had forgotten multiple weeks in a row, uh, but now is here. And hopefully this will be even better. But I want to give a shout out to huge Gator guy, Aaron. Huge Gator guy, Aaron. And huge Gator guy is his Xbox gamer tag. Hopefully, huge Gator guy, you've had some success on the Xbox gridiron. But... Wanted to wish you happy birthday from October 30th. 
We know that that birthday falls on Florida Georgia weekend, which has not been great in the recent years. And we know that your birthday has since followed with some L's. But we're hoping that giving you a shout out on this week is going to lead to a W. So either way, thank you so much for listening to the show and supporting the pod. We really appreciate that. And we wish you the best of the month of November. All right. A couple of new patrons. Mm-hmm. One in David W. Anderson with a small dono. Well, a returner Lord. with a hundo bomb. <laughs> Brad Wilson coming in with his annual hundo bomb. Appreciate that. We'll hear more from him in the later part of the show. And then off the top rope. Bam! Late last week came... Someone you all know, Barry Jenkins, out from Cali, hanging out in L.A., drops a top rope, comes in and says, time to dethrone Cooper and Kylie Craig, makes a prediction that Florida would have 535 yards of offense, which we did not have, but we did have a decent day, and that we would beat LSU, which did not happen. But Barry, we obviously applauded your positivity, and we appreciate your support, and you are now back on the throne welcome back to being the king king. of gnfp out there on the west coast and obviously what a run you had there cooper and kylie craig and here we go let's see if uh barry jenkins ruling part two can get a win for florida we all desperately want one yes welcome barry back to the throne all right, the rest of the legends, James Ridge, Guy Tumbleson, Cooper and Kylie Craig, Jason Walker, the Big Comey, Little Peyton, Constantine Double O, Alexander Leventhal, Diego Rivera, Bill Hood, James Newton, Nathan Jeter, Stashmi, Bobby Boucher, Frank Marcellisi, Mike Wechter, Tim Kane, Nicholas Isaac, Mike, Mark Jackson, Tim Hondrick, James Truett, Gus O'Leary, Bad Wilson, Mark Mitchell, Chris Folsom, Dr. Matthew Galloway, Jamie Galliano, Aaron Jeter, Jason Landry, Michael Reeves, Jason Johnson, Zach Sparks, Mark Rubenstein, Tyler Rummery, Craig Scarato, Alan Horde, Cindy Singleton, Kristen Moody, David Sugar, Percy Harvin Baby, and the legend himself, Doug G. Virgilio. All right, Florida does take an L. A lot of chatter about this game afterwards. Some people taking it quite hard. Others, maybe more of the expected outcome. Yeah, you know, it, I feel two different ways about this game, James. On one hand, if you look at the schedule as soon as it's released, you know, at Tiger Stadium presumably at night against a very talented LSU team, especially on offense. You kind of would circle this game as a probable loss. Uh, Florida did lose. Did it feel surprising in game? Maybe the fact that we were closer than maybe we thought we were going to be in the third quarter made it especially more painful. But this wasn't that surprising of an outcome, although it feels like people are losing it a little bit. I mean, I, I don't think it was a surprising outcome at all I mean if you look at our scores we were pretty much right there and if you look what we talked about it was that Florida probably was presented an opportunity to beat an LSU team that maybe gave them the best chance of winning perhaps second to Florida State and oddly enough Missouri might be the least chance of winning although that's an inverse of what other people would say but I think if you follow this team Florida is going to be generally competitive versus teams that have horrible defenses because the offense can score. And then you're coming down to like some stuff, you know, can you get two or three or four stops that you don't deserve? And and if you can, you're in the game and Florida got a gift on the kickoff return Mm -hmm. being dropped. And that's, that's what allows something like that to happen. Uh, But it still wasn't enough, which I think was according to script right now, obviously when it happens and how it happened, which we'll talk about is not what you want it to be like, but I mean, I had predicted 45, 27, 
there's not many ways your team gives up 45 points and you're going to feel good about it. So that's not to lessen the blow and say, oh, this is ho-hum, we should expect this. But this was not like a significant deviation from what most people expected to happen. In fact, this game itself made little national news in the form of like, this was some outlier. All right, it made some national news because of one player's performance. The history. But it, no one was on the mic saying, wow, this is shocking. I can't, like, it was not shocking. Yeah. And that is a sad sobering reality that we have known and all of you have known for a while as Florida fans is we're just not good. We have not been good in quite some time uh, and we're not a good football team and we weren't a good football team on Saturday and, and it's it's just as frustrating, but it is not surprising. Right. I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah. can be frustrating or I think frustration, I don't know. Frustration often comes in when you don't get the expected result. This was the expected result, although we put a lot of hope that this team can improve haven't done so at the rate that I think would be optimal. Uh, just a broader question. We're going to get into this. Um, were you more impressed with Jaden Daniels or more depressed by the Gator defense? Just more depressed. I think Jaden Daniels obviously is a very, very good college quarterback. I think he, he spins the ball nicely. I think a lot of his magic, though, this season is, is coming largely through his legs, mm-hmm. which I don't think a lot of his running will be sustainable in the NFL as he's doing it now. Um, he's feasting on what I'm going to call a lot of unforced errors by defenses. If you look at the film and this is taking nothing away from him. I think he's an excellent quarterback. We talked about all the things he does really well, but if you look at how many rushing yards he has in this game, Alan, 250 plus and 185 of them were like complete unforced error nerf balls by Florida's defense. And other teams are doing the same thing to him because he is so fast but in the NFL, you just don't get that kind of lane. You just don't get one guy completely taking a bad angle and missing his assignment so badly that you turn the corner at full speed and get a touchdown. So his yards are being inflated. But to your point, though, he earns that because he does all these little things very well. Their offense attacks you in all three dimensions. They put stress on you east and west, north and south. They have excellent receivers. They can get open one-on-one. They can crush you in zone. They can beat you with their running backs out of the backfield. They put you in a bind. And so that statement I made is to take nothing away from him, but also to say at the college level, those yards are there. At the NFL level, he's going to have to do more, you know, more passing than perhaps what he's been able to do. I mean, the guy's got, what, 800-plus rushing yards now this season? That's prolific. It's incredible. And most of it comes on on an undesigned run where he takes off and gains an incredible amount of yards. And again, the dude is prolific in that. So I guess I'm unwinding my statement saying I'm very impressed, but also like football tactically, you can easily see how like, okay, the next level, some of its production is not going to sure. be there. Yeah, I mean, against a you know super defensive unit, they're going to limit him. But I am so impressed by him overall. I think coming out of Arizona State, it's like, oh, this guy can play, man. He's he's a player. And then, you know, coming over to LSU is like, how, I don't know, how, how good is he going to be? He doesn't start off great last year. But is now, I think, incredible. Like, he is so fast and so elusive. Now, again, if you bring up the NFL, he takes some monster hits in college and hasn't really gotten hurt too much except for the previous game against Alabama. But he he would get murdered in the NFL doing what he does, like taking as many hits because he runs so fearlessly for a guy his size. And I think he sees the game well. He throws a really nice ball. He's a great player. I mean, I think, you know, they got into the conversation on the broadcast about should he be a Heisman Trophy candidate despite the fact that they've lost as much as they have. I would say absolutely. 
I think he's the best player I've seen in college football this year. I don't. The wins and losses thing is probably, I think, should matter less than what people put it up there as. But because you can't control your defensive performance. No, the fl- the Florida State game hurts him. Obviously, yeah. I think if you look at Penix at Washington being undefeated, has not really had a a Florida State level game. Has been rather excellent in every game. Hasn't been perfect in every one. But you know, the Heisman Trophy, like you said, it comes down to some stats and if your team's better than another team to a certain level. But obviously. I think what Brian Kelly says is right. If there is a guy better than Jaden Daniels in the country, it's certainly not an obvious thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's right there. And the guy's fantastic and sensational. I think it's important, even though I'm over here saying, my tactical brain says, I look at that game and think, a lot of that yardage is free yardage. He earned it, he got it. But then also recognizing that I expected LSU to score all over us. Their, their stats are fantastic. I took 15 points off the board if he wasn't playing based upon the fact that he's that important in that kind of game. And he was worth 30 points in this game by yeah. himself. And that is all credit to him, obviously. And, and to your point, Arizona State, uh, you know, who would have guessed that he would have been this good? And I think the answer is not many people. And, and LSU, again, just continues to be an offensive factory. The talent they have in that state is is second to none. Yeah, And they always have such significant playmakers to surround their quarterbacks with. And then when you give him the mobility he has, they're a super dangerous football team. And, and that's why the line has been good too. Yeah. And that's why they've been scoring. You know, if you're not, if you haven't been looking, go look at LSU's last four or five games in their body of work this season. Most of those point totals are 45, 52, 49, 48. This is not like, wow, man, Florida get up an outlier score to them. They're scoring that on everybody, and they would have scored in the 40s on Alabama had he not gotten concussed. So that's how good he is. And to your point, Alan, that's how efficient he's running the offense. And if their defense was not all-time bad for them, they would be potentially a national championship contender. Yeah, I think that's what people thought going into the year. I was a little lower on them because I didn't think they'd be there yet. But they're super young and on the defensive side as well. Okay, Florida does lose the game 52-35. It was rather close at points. Uh, Florida led in the third quarter. Couldn't keep it together. So I asked for the offense to be above 50% on third down conversion. They were not. They were at 31%, right? So that's more about what they do. Uh, They need to be significantly better. They weren't. Uh, And to keep neighbors under 100 yards, that did not happen either. He was at 132. Um, You wanted the defense to have six-plus pressures of sending six right and cover two man of 15 snaps so neither of those happened nowhere near it yeah Yeah. we'll break down the the granular numbers yeah uh, but not not anywhere close to that and as you turn to the et offense etn and trey it's funny using a last name and a it just feels right so 30 percent touches we're there at 38 percent. so i think some of that shows how florida was in this game at parts right so they were they scored 35, which is a healthy number for them. Uh, probably not enough to beat an LSU team, but they got they got close, right, and held them for a while. So, again, you predicted 45-27. I predicted 40-27. They were way north of that. They just got loose there in the, in the second half. And, you know, the defense did a good job in the first half in limiting them. There was the goal line stand. They turned them over on fourth down. Again, there was the, you know, special teams recovery. So, Florida had chances, but just was outclassed there at the end of the game. All right, the Florida offense goes 4-13 on third down. Way too often in third and long. 488 yards of offense, 177 rushing, 311 passing. That's 8.2 yards per pass and 4.2 yards per rush. There was a fumble by Mertz. 
one of three on fourth down, four sacks, five tackles for loss. So Mertz himself, 26 of 38 for one TD. That's 68% comp rate. Nice line here from ET and 18 carriers, 99 yards and three TDs, 5.5 yards per carry. Montreal, 16 for 70. Ricky had seven for 103 in a TD, and Trey had six for 63 for a TD. Um, Florida was fairly productive, both passing and running in this game. You know, not unbelievable statistics, but fairly productive for them. Uh, you know, considering the competition, was this their best game? You know, I don't think so. It's interesting if you, I like to obviously look at things like success rate and yards per play and points per game that are given up by a team just in their unit. And Florida got what you would consider to be the expected result out of this game versus an LSU defense, given the stats across the board. We expected Florida to have success in this game, and they did. So, I mean, I think this is the reality, and I want to, I just want to ask you a question from this question. Let's say that someone out there is answering this is Florida's best offensive game. And then you look at the reality that Florida was four for 13 on third down and one for three on fourth down, uh, which means that essentially you're five for 16 on your conversion downs. And if that is truly the best performance that we have had, then where are we? Despite the fact that we had a lot of yards, and this is the reality of Florida's offense, is Allen, it is what it is. It has things that are good. It has things that are bad. But the whole body of work, even in a game like this, where it feels like, hey, we scored a lot of points, we're in the game. All those things are true. If you dive a little deeper, it's still mid, yeah. mid, mid plus. I mean, an excellent <laughs> performance versus LSU is going to be converting more on third down, scoring more points, not going stagnant for three or four drives and your defense gets a stop and LSU's defense is horrible. So that is possible. So again, I think we had an expected day versus them. I'm not trying to pour cold water on the offense. Once again, just like last week, I'll say the same thing. The offense is not the reason that we lost this game. They played well enough to win. But if you do look at unit versus unit, what you have to do, it was good. But if that is the best, I think that that raises questions like, well, what does that even mean? Sure. And yeah, Florida's offense to win the game needed to put some distance between itself and LSU in the first half when LSU was scuffling a little bit. Um, and then when LSU inevitably turned it on, there was no margin. They just blew past Florida. So um, yeah, the the stats are okay. There's a, there's some positive things. Even, you know, you look at the first drive, Florida zips right down the field Puts it in there. Looks great. That's happened a couple of times, right? That early on Florida has looked good. They looked great in that first drive against Georgia and never surfaced again. Yeah, so I, what I wanted for that 50% conversion rate in third down we talked about, is you got to keep LSU on the sideline. And, you know, that's not the strategy I always want to employ, playing, you know, keep away from the other team. But for this Florida team with this unit, with their defense playing the way it is currently, that would have been an optimal strategy. You know, Billy talks about complimentary football. That would have been complimentary. And they just weren't able to do it. I just said became stagnant in parts of the game. So I think, of course, the South Carolina game was probably a little bit better in spots. And, you know, the Tennessee game where they just mauled them in the first half running the ball. But I think I asked that to say that, you know, the Florida offense looked quite nice at times in this game. And... I think 
partly because there was 38% touches going to Etienne and Trey. Montrell looked, was fine in this game as well. Ricky played well. So we, you kind of envisioned last week a, a 50% touch rate for the two of them. Imagine they get that in this game. Does that How much does that move the needle for Florida? I think it does. I mean, ETN averaged a yard more per carry in the game. If you give him six, seven more carries, what does that translate to? Is that one more home run play? You know, he averages a chunk yards play every five carries. Do you get one more 25-yard run? If Trey gets five more touches, do you get one more 20-yard, you know, run after catch? Those can change the game. Those can set you up in different regards. Now, I will applaud heavily the significant uptick yeah. in usage of these two guys. So that's that's important. That's good. And to your question of was this the best one, those are the ways where you could say it was. Florida's trying to get the ball to their playmakers much more significantly. They're still alternating possessions with Montrell and ETN, which I think is not wise. But Trey is certainly, they're trying to get him the football they ran um, some better plays at times on fourth down. We once again went back to, we said last week, if it's man-to-man, throw the ball to Trey. No one has covered him yet. And they did on fourth down. They should have done it on third down when they went to Arliss, which Mertz loves to do, and he's not open. But they went to they went to um, Trey, who's, who's open. He's wide open. Yeah, he kills that guy in that route, and the ball's behind him by a yeah. considerable margin. And he's he secures it, and it gets you know knocked out by the LSU guy who gets burnt and then celebrates because the ball's behind him. He gets to knock it out frustrating right you want that back for Mertz but that's the right mentality we blew that last week and it cost us and this week we got it right but for this offense for me to say man I'm really excited about what happened it needs to be just much more consistent with that methodology LSU didn't play man a lot but when they did we struggled and that doesn't make any sense because again they can't cover Trey they couldn't even. They can't cover Ricky one. Yeah. They really can't cover Trey though. If it's man to man, throw the ball to Trey every single time. Every single time. Too many passes go to Arliss. Too many passes try to go to anyone else. Uh, but you know, we we had a forty three percent completion rate with a rating of fifty eight point six. LSU into this game fifty six percent completion rate, one hundred eleven passing ratings. What they allowed. So they excelled significantly, and that was the difference in the football game. We were fine versus zone. We actually outperformed. The expectation, LSU zone was better. We did better against that. But the man, which has hurt us a lot. We've talked about on Film Review every week. We do not generate enough dangerous plays on man. And unfortunately, we had one called back that still frustrates me. I don't know how they had enough to overturn that call with Khalil Jackson on a dime by Mertz. A perfect pass by Mertz. uh, And just unfortunate play there. But that's not good enough. And it's unfortunate that Trey's not getting 10 targets. If I'm playing quarterback and I'm the OC and I get man, I'm throwing the ball to Trey every single time. I'm telling my quarterback, you will throw it to him every single time until he's doubled. Every time. There's no one else who's going to win like he's going to win man-to-man. And that is what you do in the NFL. The second Justin Jefferson gets one-on-one, he gets the football every time. Most teams don't give him one-on-one. When he does, you throw it to him if you get man. And, you know, Florida needs to have that mentality because we don't have enough playmakers. So, yeah, either way, good output, some better stuff, some things we've been asking for that are there. So in some ways, yeah, there's some growth that we're seeing there. Still uneven. Uh, but again, this unit, not the reason why we lost at all. Yeah. And when the offense does lag, you know, people ask, like, you know, what is the central issue behind that? There's a variety of things, but still 
you know, the breakdowns and protection that happen. You're, you're playing two guys, a tackle in this game who hadn't really played a lot of tackle when Austin Barber gets hurt. Even before that, a lot of issues at right tackle, even pressure up the middle. And so when that happens or we have a penalty or anything, just not a lot of ability to t- turn that into a first down or to recover. Um, Florida really struggles when it doesn't – well, struggles in a lot of ways, but especially in third and long – did some things in this game that were that were good there, but I don't know if you had to pinpoint like if you could just fix one thing when the offense is lagging, you know, disappear there at the end of the first half. What would you say is maybe the central issue? Yeah, it's our production on the early downs when it comes to when we try to pass, which is the right idea. Like obviously, it's not Billy's not wrong when he's trying to pass on first down a lot. In fact, right. I think it's a good thing to do. I think exactly. passing on first down is a positive EV move, and we've said it all year long I don't care what your style of offense is if you're more like me and you prefer having more guys in the pattern and you want to high low vertically fine if you want to play east west west coast football fine if you want to play any other version no matter what you play you have to be productive if you're going to pass on first down you cannot have what Florida has happened holding calls false starts incomplete passes sacks tackles for loss Mertz not throwing the ball away and losing two yards so it's second and 12 all of those yards add up and Florida finds itself behind the sticks Almost every single road game, Florida finds itself in more than one or two, sometimes three, second and 20s. And that you, there's just that's not going to work, right? You can't do that. And so that's what I think largely hurts Florida for the most part. Uh, and that's where I think, again, the one stat that sticks out for me is really just that man stick. Because listen to these other ones, Alan. We had a 108 rating versus zone. We allowed pressure at a 28% rate, which is solid. They brought pressure on just 19% of the snaps, and they got zero pressures. So when they brought pressure, they didn't get pressure. So we picked that up well, uh, and we did pretty well versus their their drop eight and then drop seven defenses with 110 QB rating. But ultimately, what's hurt Florida is a lot of those first down downs are into zones, which is what you want, and we just don't complete it. And then on third and fourth down, it's largely man. And even if we get it, it's not enough yards. It's not enough to make a team fear you. But yeah, I think if it's one thing to answer your question with a simple sentence, it it is Florida's inability to consistently get positive EV on early passing downs, which is the right idea. I want that to be clear. I want my OC to do that. Florida's just not been consistent enough at doing it. When they do, it looks like the first drive. Walk down the field. When they don't, it's just backwards, backwards, third and long, we're off the field. And too often uh, we have the drives that really... If you go back and look, I don't have the time to go back and count these throughout the season. If we have an incompletion on first down, we often follow that up with a two-yard run play on second down. Correct. And then we're in third and eight. So Frequently. Now, if you're ripping off five, six yards on those runs, it's not a real problem. But we get conservative after that incompletion. Whereas, you know, again, this is the problem. If you don't have, like, a, an elite aspect to your offense, you can't throw it. And an elite way or run an elite way, you're you're kind of uh, once one bad thing happens, it kind of stacks upon itself, and you're unable to get out from under it. It's almost like you have to be efficient with every single play, and that is too much to ask. So you have nothing you can really rely on to get you, you know, consistent effective yardage. And the best if you have, you're kind of limited because you're thrown to a freshman wide receiver who you can't get enough touches to, or you're rotating your backs too much, or whatever it might be. Um, okay. Bright spots. Anything that we haven't mentioned that 
man, this this looks good. Any kind of play design or performances that are worth being you know, praised here. Well, like we said, that fourth down and three call, I mean, I loved it. We motioned, we put Trey in motion, we ran, a, we ran basically an angle route to the middle, which is a great route. We ran the same thing last week. It's a great route. I, I love that. We did not see any of that all year until recently. That route should be run with other receivers too. But that's, I want to give that major praise because that's a very simple way to defeat man and you should take the simplest path to success. So I like that. And, you know, I'm going to, a bright spot for the offense in general is that this team, despite obviously what's growing noise in the fan base, what's growing frustration from those of us that do analytics and look at the team, growing frustration just across the board, they, they play really hard. The offense plays really hard. They try, they want to win. That game was a very spirited game. Mm hmm. LSU really wanted to win that game and Florida really wanted to win that game. The emotions were high. The energy was high and we don't get it done, but that is a bright spot. The team is absolutely at this point in time, not quitting on the coaching staff. I mean, they are playing with everything they have and there's very, there's very little visible bad body language, which we saw a lot of in the last year of Dan Mullen, a lot of it on film. There's very little of that body language and there's none of it really on offense. So to me, that is actual a bright spot. That is a good thing it's a good sign of course having good attitudes when you lose is not is not necessarily what you're looking for but the team did fight and they gave everything they had mm -hmm. in attempts to win and that that's what you want your players to do is do all they can to win and you know that that's a bright spot so i think this is a huge thing for florida is that trey wilson continues to look like possibly the best guy on the field when he's out there he is only a freshman He's got a ton of room to improve, I'm sure, in a lot of technical aspects of the game. But he's just so dangerous whenever he has the ball. And hopefully he's going to get bigger, stronger, faster than even what he is right now. And for as long as he's at Florida, he's going to be a major weapon that teams have to account for. So it's not just a fluke. Hey, we we're, we got on the ball in some gadgety ways. Like He's doing more and more things that impress me. He's getting open consistently. No team has really limited him. No. It's been mostly Florida not scheming enough ways to get him the ball or prioritizing getting him in the ball. That is correct. So love that. Anything else to note on offense? No, the way to improve, of course, is is really seriously. Let's get 50-plus percent of the touches to these guys. We were close last game, but, I mean, I, I think when teams play man, throw the ball to Trey. Really, it's that simple. Until They're not bracketing him right now. Until they start bracketing him, you throw the ball to Trey. Pre-snap first read every single time you get man. Do it. Don't do anything else. Yeah, that sounds excessive, but I think it would be really effective. You would force them into having to play you differently for sure. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. 
Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Okay. Let's talk about the defense. Uh, by a lot of metrics, the worst defensive showing in Florida history. So Florida's been playing football for over 100 years. And this is, in some sense, the worst one. So, uh, <laughs> is this this is a wild stat. LSU's only two of six on third down. Two only, of six. They only got to six, six third downs. It's a comedy. That's a, it's a joke. <laughs> two of six is great, by the way. It's a great number. Your Florida's defense. You're doing a great job on third down. And then oh, two on fourth down. I mean that early also on. Also great. It's great. <laughs> Early on, that was the story of the game that Florida had stopped them twice on fourth down. But, yes, obviously that doesn't hold. Okay. I mean, really just everything they wanted. 701 yards total. That's a record. 372 passing. 329 rushing. So Florida got, yeah, three stops, one punt. Two sacks. Seven pressures, one turnover. But five straight touchdowns in the game for LSU. They cannot do anything late. Getting beat over the top, getting beat on the sideline, just everything was bad, bad, bad. Okay. Uh, yeah, just a total collapse in the second half again. I mean, Arkansas took it to them late, couldn't stop them. LSU, even to a greater degree. What do you think was the main culprit this time? Yeah, this is like complicated. I'm going to start... Also, I'm going to work through three things, and I'll just start with the the simple version of each one, and then we can talk more about them if it merits it. Because we've already seen a lot of stuff from this defense. There was nothing new that occurred, but this was the most disappointing game plan for me from Coach Ham. Because we had said last week, and we thought it was pretty clear based upon some limited data, but still, the other data was 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 ample that you did not want to try to stop them this way was that you really needed to make sure you pressured with a lot of guys, six or seven, and that you needed to definitely play, if you played man, as much coverage to man as you possibly could to give yourself two safeties with eyes on the quarterback and eyes on the ball with a lid on the defense to minimize these humongous plays that occurred. And all Florida did, Allen, was play a remarkable 70% of their snaps in man. 70% of them. Now, I love man defense. All of you know that. If you play man defense versus a running quarterback, you have to play a spy, which then takes your free defender away from either rushing the quarterback or playing in the hole where he can help rob slant routes or intermediate routes. He can sink back or he can help double a running back or something else. What Florida chose to do in some regards was to have Scooby, generally Scooby, or someone else, of course, be assigned to either be a spy if the running back stayed in or if the running back went out to cover the running back. Well, LSU figured out that was partially Florida's plan because they were playing so much man. They basically just had their running back start running very creative halfback middle routes. I call them the middle routes, but 
call them an angle route, whatever you want, but I love those routes. We talk a lot about them with Florida running them because they're excellent routes for this reason. And Florida's linebackers who do not read the field well, who are not good. We've talked about it a lot. It's a huge deficiency, especially Scooby often got just, he, he would look for a second. He would say, oh, the running back's not going out. I'm going to go spy or fill. And the running back's wide open, wide open right? Because they ran him on like a cute little outside the tackle route or something else. But, you know, it, there's a lot of pressure on your defense when you play man versus LSU because your defensive line is going to go four versus five or three versus five. And then Jaden Daniels is super quick. If you let any of those gaps have space, he's going to come at you flying. And then if you're in man, no one's there. No one is there to see you. And if you're in cover two, man, you have two safeties to come downhill, but often Florida only had one because they're bracketing or they're rotating or they're doing something else to help cover up maybe neighbors, something else. So in essence, I felt like the game plan itself is what I like about Coach Ham is if you have really talented players, the game plan would have been excellent. The reason Daniels ran a lot outside of the zone read was because people were completely covered, which is great. On one hand, that's a win. That's a win, right? You got your front four rushing. You've got everybody covered. He has to go. He has to run. That's a win for the defense. But it's not a win when he's getting 60 yards per carry. And again, to me, I I like him because I do think if he has a set of players that's quality, these sort of schemes are like the top level kind of scheme. But right now for this game versus this team, I did not like this scheme because I think it fed into what LSU wants to do, what Jaden Daniels wants to do as a quarterback. We talked about how they crushed man. They didn't versus cover two. We played only two snaps in cover two, man. Only two snaps in cover two, man. We sent only one six-man pressure, which they completed a big pass on, which was that six-slot fade over Jaden Hill, which you'll live with that throw. And the two seven-man pressures we brought, zero completions. Twelve five-man pressures murdered us for a perfect quarterback rating and a 75% completion finish. That really pisses yeah, me we off. Yeah, we were not getting home at all with those five-man pressures. That pisses me off. Because that is obvious in the data. Coach Ham is smarter than that. That is inexcusable. To pull up the analytics on LSU and see what they are doing to five-man pressures and to bring 12 five-man pressures is the height of foolishness. And that, scheme-wise, really bothers me. Yes. So I think, obviously, I asked the question in the leading way of the main culprit, right? What's different about this game that felt like, you know, especially debilitating? Lots of blame to go around everywhere. I think really the two freshman safeties struggled a ton in this game. That showed up probably more than it ever has. And that that's unsurprising considering the complexity of like what LSU challenges you with. As you said, there's a lot, not just scheme-wise, but really the, the, the type of stuff you have to defend, the level of receivers. They have a pair of receivers that most teams would love to have, don't even really dream about outside maybe like Ohio State and Thomas and neighbors and they got cooked a couple times. The DBs, the safeties took some bad angles on that long touchdown run, really bad angle from Thornton and never recovered from that. Castell continues to struggle in tackling. So just their deficiencies and their inexperience showed up a ton. And yeah, with that, again, not having anything that you do really well, I think, Again, haunts this defense, and against a team like LSU, they're going to expose you. And yeah, I had we sit like the house a ton of times, like six and seven, 
it wouldn't have been much different, right? Than sending like you're not going to get beat worse than perfection with five man pressure. So why not send a sixth and seventh? Well, especially because the data backs yeah. it up, and even in the game. Even in the game and the micro samples, you had success. Exactly. If you looked at the in-game data, you had success. And the one six-man pressure, he got rid of the ball quickly through a dime. Let him do that all game long. If he completes all those passes over the shoulder in the bucket, he's going to win. So that that's frustrating. The second thing, obviously, beyond beyond the the chosen tactic of of what we chose to run in this particular game, was what you mentioned. And this is something we're going to keep saying. This is not an excuse. It is a reality not an excuse. It is a reality. Florida at times, again, is playing four or five, sometimes six freshmen heavily, two freshman safeties. If you're asking where Florida's former four slash five star, you know, Kamari is, who knows? Who knows? He's not playing, right? Obviously, whatever, not there. So you've got Castell and you've got Thornton who got a lot of playing time. And on the 85 yard quarterback keeper, Thornton is in run fit on the outside gap. His job is to literally come downhill and tackle that for a loss. He's not even close. He runs inside, not doing his job, does the wrong thing, never recovers. Freshman at the corner spot on the same play with Castell is Jakeem Jackson. He, as a freshman, plays great as a cover corner, by the way, gets turned to the inside because he's used to playing high school football, and now comes a super fast guy. And when he needs to stay to the outside to force it back to the inside, which then comically has Thornton run into Jakeem Jackson. And then Castell, who doesn't start running hard when he sees right from the get-go, we have a bad angle, and does not take a good angle himself, doesn't catch him. But the silver lining there, you have three true freshmen on the field, on that side of the field, at the same time. Paired with Kelby Collins, freshman, TJ Searcy, freshman, you know, James in the D-line, freshman, Jaden Robinson, freshman. I mean, how many freshmen? This is 30% of our snaps are going to freshmen. So still, I want to say this. Very important. If I'm a coach and I'm, I'm not on the inside there, so I don't know what's being said. This is the hard part I cannot answer for you. Certainly, there's no world that exists where Coach Ham on that play has not coached extensively for his safeties to make sure they attack the outside shoulder of the zone read. There is no world where that's not what's preached. There just isn't one. So in the game, when a freshman's on the field and he gets big eyes and thinks he's going to make a play and loses discipline, there's no world where they ever told him to do that. And if he's a senior, you're blaming the coaches. Don't play him, play someone else, get it right. But he's a freshman. He's playing his third game ever, really, like as a starting kind of guy against one of the fastest quarterbacks in all of college football with a very dynamic offense. Touchdown, 85-yard touchdown, maximum pain, right? And this occurred in multiple other areas. So I think that's the second part, is we are playing a crazy amount of freshmen. But trying to run the scheme we're running, which is very complicated, we've talked about it. It's very high ceiling, that's I like it. With what we have now and the tactical game plan we took, all of those combinations, bad tactics, scheme that perhaps we're finding out this year is too much for this team right now, too many freshmen at key positions. And lastly, bad tackling. Yeah. We'll talk about that in a second because that's not just Florida. It's a lot of teams. Bad tackling. That's the recipe for the Florida LSU game. So, yeah, I don't know. Watching Jane Daniels play with this team, it seemed impossible to limit him. Like he was going to burn you eventually and in big ways. Not just eventually. He's going to burn you often 
felt inevitable. So we've talked about what we did poorly. What would you have done differently to try to limit him? Well, I mean, let's assume they don't take the game plan I wanted them to do. Right. I think first I would have started with that. So my game plan would have been twofold. Let me start with what I suggested. We're going to start trying to play a more aggressive limit you defense. Keep two on the top. Run cover two man when we can. Try to keep the lid on the defense. And then obviously when we pressure, we're going to bring everyone. We're going to play man because we like those matchups. We want to get rid of the ball quickly. We want to have no lanes for Jaden Danos to escape in. That's why you bring seven guys. There's nowhere to run. He has to throw the football. Live with the results, right? And again, Florida did that on a third down early, third and nine, when he overthrew his slot receiver and we had good coverage. So that was a win. Secondarily, if early on that is not working, then I'm going to go to just a safety defense. I'm going to play cover four. I'm going to drop way the heck back. I'm going to keep everything in front of me. And I'm going to just hope they make mistakes on their own. Because college teams will do that, even really good ones. And then hope I hold them to field goals. They just give up in between the 20s. You can drive all the way down here into the red zone. And then hopefully I'll stop you. Because as you saw Florida, when Florida gets to man up in a heavy defensive goal line front, we're pretty good at stopping the run. We're actually pretty difficult to score on in that regard. So we'll just live with those results. We'll make the field small, right? I think that's the bailout. Now, we have not seen Coach Ham ever want to go to that. And this brings me to the last narrative, which is both for Florida's offense and defense. It's year one of Austin Armstrong. When you're coaching, you clearly are trying, you're trying to win now, which we talked about last year with Bill and offense. And you're also trying to teach all of your freshman players how to play this defense because you need to win next year. So there's this balancing act of like, even in the NFL, defense is too complicated. They can't just totally switch from one style to the other every week. Most of these guys don't know how to run the normal defense. So you can't just say, let's do this, right? You can't. Mm -hmm. So it's much more complicated, but I do think Florida would be wise and would have been wise in that game to have an emergency plan. If we start getting cooked, we must go to safe plan. And we didn't really have that, despite trying all kinds of other stuff. It was never like max safety. We're just going to sit back here and keep a lid on it and keep everything in front of us and hope they implode on their own. And in large part, because in the first half, Alan, we actually did have a good first half. I think that contributed partially to some of the problem. They scored 17 points. We were looking pretty good in some phases of defense. And I think they came out thinking, hey, this game plan is working. We're going to clean up some of our mistakes, which was true. Some self-inflicted wounds we made, and we're going to have a good second half. But I think as we've seen now, it's clearly evident, no matter who we are playing, that this team is not ready to play consistently. And if the scheme is right, they're going to be wrong. And it's going to cost us dearly. And it's probably time to punt. So in-game, I would have been ready more quickly, I think, to go to the let me not end our entire game and just say, forget it. I'm waving the white flag. You can have all the yards you want. Get in the red zone. We'll play defense. See what happens. Which is a viable strategy that teams use even in the NFL if things start going the wrong way. Yeah, I mean, that is, it's wild to even talk about that. Because I know, like we talked about your own even personal strategy, that that's the last thing that would be, you know, optimal or advantageous in most scenarios. That's like a man, you're just giving up there. But when you're getting beaten as badly as you are, trying to limit some of that, I think would have been helpful. So would you just have Flores shift into that these last two games? Yeah, I think that's the right. So looking forward, I think I think if you're Coach Ham now, you you basically Florida has to get a win. And we saw, I think, in year one with Billy, our major frustration. I know I lost my mind in an episode where it was clear to me that like he preferred his systematic install over winning a game. And I really believed that last year. That like we literally didn't sell out to win individual games because we were too concerned with building the long term. 
I do not want to see that happen on defense this year. I don't. Like, if I'm Coach Ham this week, I'm like, hey, Billy, look, man, I know that we need to build and get these guys reps, but, like, we have two games left. We have got to win a football game. We have to win one. And I cannot trust my players to do what I want them to do. It's not working, obviously. Missouri's a good football team. Let's instead just try to keep everything in front. We're going to play super safe. The whole install this week is going to play. We'll just play quarters coverage, drop everybody back. We'll play static in our zones, which is as simple as it can be. And we're going to keep it simple. But we may be able to stop them, trade two touchdowns for two field goals. Maybe they 25, maybe they score 21, 24, whatever, instead of 40. That, I think, is a realistic plan. I think it's one Florida should probably employ versus both Missouri and Florida State. And if you do that, you can keep everyone's eyes in the backfield. You can play a lot of zone. You can see the quarterbacks if they scramble out. And you just say, forget it. Just forget it. We can't do all the awesome stuff Georgia does. We're not Georgia. We can't execute it despite the fact we're trying. And for the players, they can handle that load. And then say, let's get to rebuilding this culture of defense in the offseason. Because we got a punt on what's happening now. Is that going to happen? I highly doubt it. I think like any good coach, you feel like with one more week of communication and teaching, you're going to clean up the mistakes you're making. But I think at this point, that's to ignore the reality of what Florida's put on film with this current unit. So that's what I would do. It would shock me if Florida moved to anything like that. I think you're going to see Florida do the same stuff they've been doing because it does theoretically work. That's why I like Coach Ham. It is not working. Right. So I think that I'm envisioning Jordan Travis running down the field like untouched for huge gains if we're continuing to do what we're doing against them. And maybe, yeah, maybe we're going to send more, maybe we'll do some slightly different things, but yeah, it's, it's frustrating because as you said, part of the, of the, of the tactics seems so good, but our inability to perform them, you have to, at some point as a coach go, it's not working. And I don't, maybe it just won't considering that we're playing all of these young guys and we have mismatched, people at different positions, you know, trying to fill in some of these gaps. Yeah. And I think sometimes like, you know, lastly, we're, we're obviously trying to help deficiencies. We talked about this last week on the film review. We stunt and twist a lot on the mm-hmm. defensive line. Yeah. And the main reason we do that is we don't believe that we can just line up and get pressure with our front four. We're missing a D end. Uh, you know, we think our D tackles can hold up well enough, but we're just trying to find ways to affect the quarterback to confuse the blocking schemes because we don't believe that we can line up and play what you would consider like vanilla solid football. Uh, and that hurts Florida sometimes. I, others have talked about it. We've talked about it. It's high risk, high reward. And that's where I'm saying I think all that stuff can be really beneficial, but I think it's at this point we have to acknowledge that. And also, let's be real here, Alan. When we got the news that Shamar James is out, Mm. you know, I'd immediately said, we're probably going to lose all the rest of our games. I mean, we talked about on the pod last week, but you can't overstate the importance of losing a guy who is the quarterback of the defense, who's largely telling Scooby where to go. Not that Scooby doesn't know the play, but like he's making sure he's in the optimal starting spot. That's what a middle linebacker does for everyone. We don't have anyone doing that anymore. Scooby at times in the game was signaling and no one's looking at his signal and the ball snapped and we're not ready. Um, and I'm not trying to pick on Scooby. I'm trying to illustrate the importance of losing a guy like Shamar James on a, on a, on a defense that doesn't have SEC-level linebackers. We've already covered that, too. Like, Shamar's a four-star. I mean, um, Scooby's a four-star recruit. He's got talent. He's quick. 
Uh, after that, you know, you've got some transfers, some guys, you know, some freshmen who's talented. You just don't have guys. And that is showing up significantly with Florida week in and week out. And that is a positive silver lining. If this defense is doing this and you've got Hopper and Shamar in there as juniors and you've got everything you want and you're like, what the heck are we doing? Then you got real problems. You can point the finger entirely at the coordinator and the scheme. My takeaway point for the defense is I am not in a position where I can tell you it's all scheme. It's all coach ham. It's all players. What I can tell you is we've had three straight years of horrible defenses. We've had three straight years of different coordinators. All right. This year on paper is the least NFL ready team. So you're going to have Princely. He'll be drafted. Maybe first round. Certainly top two rounds. It looks like at this point, if a guy like Jason Marshall comes out, he'll be drafted, but certainly not high given where he's at, right? I mean, not like a top two round guy. And then after that, this year, right now, yeah, Cam Jackson, not in the future. Yeah, yeah. So Cam Jackson, a guy, right? Maybe a guy, yeah. Maybe, where's he going? Not not top two. So you look at this team like, this is not a team loaded. I mean, last year, how many guys descended the NFL on defense? It was kind of comical, right? We've got, we've got multiple guys starting in the NFL from last year's defense, so it's just as bad. So I don't have the answers on defense other than to say, I prefer this year's defense to last one when I'm looking at it on film tactically because what we're putting out there can work at an extremely high level. It can work at the highest levels. It works in the NFL, which is not what I saw last year. But at the same point in time, Alan, the same point in time, obviously for winning right now with the current players that we have, it's not working. And that would require some creative coordinating to try to get the best from the unit that we have because this is not working. But again, I can't just tell you Armstrong's trash. We should fire him. It's all his fault. Or it's all the players. It's probably a blend of both, as I'm trying to describe. But I still just don't have enough information to definitively say. Because having half a season or three quarters of a season is not enough to know what this all looks like. It's one of those things where you say, we have to have another year of data to really know what this means. Other than right now, it's frustrating. It's not working. And I think Florida would be wise to punt on their defense and play safe and just do their best to just not implode on their own. All right. Any glimmers of hope from some of the personnel? I mean, I think there were some moments in the game where the defense does look right. You know, the goal line saying especially, you know, stands out, but anything else that is worth noting for us? I mean, I think, it's hard because no one played well throughout the entire game. Even Princely didn't have his usual hero effort in this game. They did a good job neutralizing him for the most part. I mean, Jaden Hill sticks out. The guy just gives max effort everywhere. Gets beaten a man play right there. You know, makes a sensational tackle on Jaden Daniels where he right. runs him down off a nickel blitz. But that guy on film gives max effort every time. He engages all the blocks fully. He does everything right. And and that's a guy who's responding to the coaching he's getting. And I think NFL teams will see that if they're looking at a guy. You know, can he play nickel in the NFL? It, it, it remains to be seen. You have to be a really impressive cover guy to hold that job down. I'm not sure if he quite has that. But for college, he's excellent. But more importantly, the guy just max effort every play. He almost never does the wrong thing. And that is excellent. That's excellent stuff that he's putting on film. Uh, unfortunately, it's not enough for Florida to be there. And once again, Florida's corners, so disappointing. Kimber is is a, is a getting cooked machine out there each and every week. Devin Moore injured. That also really hurt Florida. Mm-hmm. I think he's Florida's best corner. He's not in the game. Can't play. He's hurt. The guy's always hurt. That sucks. Jason Marshall, 
some good plays and some inexplicably burnt to a crisp plays. All right, Astro Glimmers of Hope, you're giving me burnt to a crisp. And so the Glimmers of Hope is like, you know, Jakeem Jackson coverage-wise, fantastic. Got look great out there. <laughs> so it's like, you know, you see some stuff, but I think ultimately you're digging deep. You're digging deep. Right. There's not a lot. There's, that's why I said glimmers. There's not, there's not a lot, right? You know, there's just not a lot from what we already know. And, uh, you know, Florida's, I think, has some real question marks at safety as much as we liked Castell coverage guy I still like him as a coverage guy but the tackling I mean you can get better tackling is often effort desire technique but man Florida's back end tackling from their corners and their safeties is gross and sickening and soft and bad and I want to bring it up because a lot of teams feel this way nowadays and the reality is these teams rarely hit each other they don't tackle often and that is going to make every team softer if you don't practice it, all of a sudden you're in a game and you don't tackle that often. Well, it's not instinctive from you. It's not. And so there are rules on contact. Not all of this is not like college coaches everywhere just don't want to have contact. It just is a lot harder game for college teams to tackle. NFL teams tackle a lot better because they tackle more. They still don't tackle nearly as much as they used to, but they tackle more consistently throughout the year. But ultimately, Florida's got a major tackling problem. On right, the back I end. think this is true of a lot of teams around the country. A lot of teams. Like, That's these correct. guys don't aren't trained in the same ways they used to be trained in high school. That's right. So th- this is just, you're not coming in as an ace tackler. No, either. but Jaden Hill tackles extremely well, which yeah. shows you that it can be done. Now the question is, is he teaching himself or a coach is helping to teach him? Not, they're not teaching anyone else. And he's also a senior rather than a freshman. Correct. And he's a senior. So I don't know the answers to those. Those are hard questions. I don't know. If I'm going to practice every day, I can tell you, hey, they're not teaching these guys tackling. This is on the coaches. I can't. I don't know. But what I can right. tell you is if I am a coach, there's a significant EV boost available to you if you spend a lot of your offseason actually teaching your defense how to tackle. It's period. Forget all the awesome scheme stuff you're doing. How about we learn how to tackle and just look at college football around the world? Like, I mean, around the country, it's like major opportunity to improve your defense by teaching your back end, especially to tackle somebody the right way. It, it's the difference of, you know, five yards versus 15. Right. And yeah, like, as we said, there's been times where Florida's just gotten punished maximally by a, missed, a key missed tackle in big spots. So that was definitely true this week. All right. Special teams, not too much to note here. Um, I mean, they didn't play a, a significant role in this game. There weren't any notable mistakes, so that's better. I guess, you know what? Let me stop and say nothing to report in the special teams era, you know, area that is really frustrating. So I guess that's a win. At least nothing that I saw. So if you saw something out there, you can let us know. No, no, that, you know, that's <laughs> that quiet special teams day is, is a good one for sure. All right. Coaching here at the end of half, Florida gets the ball back. Several timeouts, I think all three, at least two, maybe just two. A couple minutes left on the clock. You know, we talked about, oh, can Florida be aggressive into the half to try to get some points? They're going to need all the points they can get, obviously. Starts off with a penalty coming out of a change of possession for a delay of game there. And after that, I would say Florida probably wisely runs out the half considering LSU doesn't have any timeouts left considering where you are on the field bad down and distance were you disappointed by that or just hey that's what happens sometimes I mean I think the most disappointing thing was 
not getting the play in, coming out of change of possession. You nailed it right there. And Mertz was hot about that. Hot about that. And every game this happens. Every game Florida gets a play in, and only do they get it in late. It involves like two pre-snap motions, which is a comedy. It's a comedy that we do. What are we doing? Calling in a play? I mean, whatever. I'm not even going to rant about it. I've ranted about it before. But that is maddening. But also, on that first down play, Florida was going to run the ball, which is what Billy typically does in those scenarios. And if you get yards, you go. And that's not atypical. You know, we're backed up on our own 10-yard line. But they don't have any timeouts to bother you. They do not have timeouts to bother you. You could run the ball at any time, take all the clock off, to your point. Uh, So if it's me, we all know what I'm doing. I'm slinging and I'm trying to score because I know that I need to take advantage of a two-for-one opportunity, a two-for-none opportunity where I get the ball back-to-back. And then we go run, you know, penalty run. And then obviously we don't want to give Jaden Daniels the ball back. Um, But again, to me, you have to risk it for the biscuit. And And you have a kicker who can make it from a distance. Yes, you need every point you can get. You got a quarterback who almost never turns the ball over with a pick. You know, yeah, it could be under some pressure that could get you. But LSU's defense is not good. I would have liked to have seen Florida, even after first and 15, say, F it. We need to find a way to score. Let's move the ball. And if it comes down to, you know, third down, we'll run the ball. Third and 10, run the ball. Take off 40 more seconds. Anytime you want, you can take And they're going to have like 16 seconds left, which is dangerous. They could do something. But again, risk reward there. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't. It's not ideal. So I'm not gonna like. After that was first and fifteen, mathematically, he's completely within his rights, and it's fine to do that. But I just think, knowing everything we know about Florida football, if I'm the head coach of the Florida team, I just know I need to be aggressive. I, I this is not a game where I'm like waiting out possessions. Okay, a couple questions here from Brad Wilson he gave a few kind of big picture questions for us. So thanks, Brad. Uh, so since his first question here, since the offense has not been the weak link in the past month or so, does Napier stay the course and not hire, quote unquote, not hire an OC? Let me answer this one first. I, I think the offense has been better, and that's encouraging. They, they've been better than they were early in the season, certainly by a large margin, actually. But I think there's still considerable upside of just not having Billy – have to focus on everything all at once. Then you're going to get less things like you saw coming out of the change of possession where we don't have to play in on time. You have more people eyes on some of the, um, you know, schematic things throughout the week. You know, again, scoring 35 points on LSU is not a revelation, right? So I don't think there's been anything that would show me that that wouldn't still be a plus thing. Um, now this, this offense is still limited personnel wise, especially on the offensive line. So they're never going to be a prolific unit. I don't think despite any kind of OC, they weren't going to be a world-class unit. So I am encouraged that the offense has been better, but I don't think that's dissuaded me. What about you? Oh yeah. I'm, I'm firmly on the, we need an OC and it's not, again, we've talked about this before, unless you are an elite, elite offensive mind, I cannot see the value in you being the OC and calling plays in the world where a college football coach has so many very important jobs to do. You only have so many hours in a day. You are weakening, I think, your overall team unless you look at yourself and say, I am a significant plus. You pull your chart out and you say defense, offense, special teams, recruiting, university, location, plus or minus or neutral, right? And if you put a big fat plus mark next to your name under OC, then you can stay there. If it's anything other than that, don't do it. 
there's no reason to do it because you are replaceable. And in my opinion, everything about Florida's offense is replaceable. None of it is special. It's not gifted. It's not brilliant. It's just an offense. It's working. It can work fine. Florida's been benefited by the fact that we played a lot of really bad defenses. The offense has been better versus bad defenses. Let's see what happens these last two games. If Florida scores 40 on Missouri and on Florida State, I will be the first to celebrate the heck out of this offense because those two defenses are actually good. The defenses we have faced, South Carolina, terrible, right? Arkansas, like we said, was like mid-minus. But LSU Auburn, bad. Yeah, LSU's horrific. Kentucky, not great, but okay. They smoked us. And now you got two good defenses. So yeah, we'll see what happens. Against an elite team like Georgia. That was- and then Georgia, you know, nothing. So we'll see what happens. But all that to being said, the offense has gotten better. But ultimately, the OC comment wasn't just because, oh man, the offense sucks so bad. It was because of that. There's no plus mark there. Yeah, cost-benefit analysis Yes, there. yes, you can't do it. So go find your, now you have extra time to add some, some incremental pluses on other areas that's going to overall give you a better football team. So therefore, no, it does not change my mind unless all of a sudden he wakes up and becomes, again, a top five OC. Then you leave him there. But I, I, think, I don't think anybody would say that that's Billy Napier's reality. All right, second question from Brad. Given the intense pressure on Napier and the recent defensive lows, does Napier feel compelled to fire Coach Armstrong to satisfy either the AD and or the fan base? I'll go first again. I think this would be a huge mistake to fire him. Now, again, this is statistically some of the worst defenses we've seen, but he's a rising star for a reason. And he's also, the fact that he's 30, plus you're working with a very green unit. And I don't think we can understate the Shamar James, like pulling that pin. The defense has gotten significantly worse since we lost him. Right. It wasn't great to begin with. And sometimes, you know, you're walking on the edge of a knife there and you, pull one thing and kind of it's a everything starts to collapse. And so I think that's have to be considered because we're playing with linebackers who are just not capable of doing what we're asking them to do. Yeah. I mean, you know, no, obviously I think we talked about this before. Like you hired, this is a guy in coach coach ham who was hired by Alabama to be an on field linebackers coach at the age of 30. And perhaps right now he wishes he had taken that job. (laughs) Because of questions like this one, not that it's a bad question, but because he's not even a year into his job with a team that you just mentioned has many deficiencies on defense playing against an LSU offense, which spoiler alert is one of the best of all time with regards to many of their advanced metrics. This is not just some joke offense. They're scoring that many points on almost everybody. All that being said, the defense is extremely disappointing this year. No doubt about it, but I likened back to baseball, Coach Ham to like a, a a top prospect you bring up. Well, you know what happens to most top prospects in the bigs? They struggle for a year. Sometimes it's entirely their fault. Sometimes there's an adjustment to the lifestyle, the pitching, whatever. But I think to bail on a guy that you think, if you hired him, imagine you're the head coach and you hire Allen because you look at Allen, you think this dude's got tons of talent. And Allen, let's say, has a rough first year and you think, some of it is his fault and some of it is the player's fault, whatever else. If you still think that Allen has high ceiling talent, do you just quit on him after one year? And if you do, who do you hire next? You can only then hire an extremely established defensive coordinator who happens to be available, who wants to come to your program and work under you when your program is sinking. Who do you get? Who wants to do that? Because you're not going to get the next aspiring guy who says, bro, I saw you just ax this dude 
who was hired by Saban after one year. So that's a toxic, terrible way to run your program if you still think that. Now, obviously, here's the other side. If you think that you're the coach, that this guy is not who you thought he was, through your conversations, through your game planning, through watching the team, through seeing the players grow, that he's not the guy. He doesn't have that talent. He's a busted prospect. He came up through the bigs, can't handle it up here. Then yes, you get rid of him. But the question has to do with the AD or the fan base. Neither of them can know that. I can't know that, right? We always wait for enough data. Same thing with Grantham, same thing with anyone else. Same thing with Tony, right? With Tony, even at the end, as bad as it was, it's like, man, you could fire this guy because of the tactics he was using on the field. This feels very different. So I don't want to belabor this, but I don't know, lastly, what is going to happen to Coach Ham. I loved Coach Ham in the beginning because of his energy and enthusiasm. And I still really like his ceiling level tactics. I'm going to keep saying that. I do think if you put him on Georgia and he's Georgia's DC, he is killing it. Now, if you're Tyler Rummery and you say that you put anyone as Georgia's DC, they're killing it, you're partially correct because they have tons of talent. But I think he's getting like max output out of them. But that's not who we are right now. Is that fireable? I don't think so, given the things you mentioned, Alan. And I think it would be a major mistake for the other reasons I just mentioned. Unless, again, caveat here, unless you're Billy and you know this guy's not who you thought he was, you have no longer, you just don't see the future and trust for him and you don't think he's going to be a talent, then of course you do. And I wish I could know that, but I can't know that. That requires way too much day-to-day working operation for me to know from here whether that's true. I don't think that's the case, but I can't know. All right, and lastly, even though he's dealt a bad hand, some of the things we talked about, any evidence that the players he puts on the field are well coached and showing week to week improvement? Again, this is hard to say considering um, some of the youth. And again, he's not—he doesn't coach every player individually. Right? There are position coaches for each of these guys. It does feel obviously the defense has regressed in some areas, considering you know the statistical output from the beginning of the year. Yeah, I, I struggle to think about this. Are they well-coached and showing week-to-week improvement? Obviously, the defense as a whole is not showing week-to-week improvement in the meta, but tactically, is that true? That's a hard one to answer for me. This is a great question because this is what we preach on the podcast is you need to see your team get better as the season goes on. And the answer is... Up until the Shamar James injury, the defense was regressing statistically while simultaneously improving in things they'd struggled with before. For example, gap runs, counter runs, things like that. They were getting better. They attacked them better. The players were learning how to handle it. Post the Shamar James injury, the defense is just largely regressing because it's very hard to play football without linebackers that can do something consistently, period. It just, those are, they're super important guys. Uh, and that's not, again, I, I'm trying to say this without like, I'm not like, man, you know, these guys, Scooby, Nunnery, et cetera, they're terrible. That's not what we'll ever say in the podcast. First of all, these guys are giving their all. Second of all, they're excellent athletes in their own right. And third of all, they're just not plus level SEC linebackers. That's what we're saying. That's not a knock on them. That's in just, the roles that they're asking. Correct. That's right just a reality. So they're, they're having to, they themselves have a, a hand that is dealt to them that they don't like either and is not ideal. And they're trying to make the best of it. But the evidence then, therefore, obviously, is one that you see, which is regression. But then I mentioned other scenarios where you see a guy like, you know, Kelby Collins or Cersei, or uh, obviously you see, you know, Jakeem Jackson in coverage. Uh, You see Jaden Hill, who's one of the few veteran players on our team who switched spots from corner to nickel 
and in one year has emerged as probably our most consistent player on all of the defense, playing a brand new position in a spot where we have been horrific at nickel for years. That means something to me. But all in all, the answer here, I think, is you can't know that. And that's why you're asking the question. It's like, is the coaching the reason this is bad? I want to keep going back to something bigger. Three straight years, three different coordinators, three horrible defenses. Is it all the coordinators? Is it all the players? Is it some form of both? In this case, this is the first time I have been saying on the film, largely, these tactics will work. They will work at a high level versus any opponent if it's executed correctly. That has not been the case before. So that's why I lean more towards saying, let's see what happens in the future. And that's why in the past, I wasn't on board with that because I knew that was never going to work versus premier opponents, even if we had talent. And that's where I am in my opinion. But these are super difficult questions to answer definitively, which is why, again, unless you know as the head coach definitively, you don't believe in this guy anymore. I think you're wise to say, let me give him another year to see what things look like with one more full year of development, with some some freshmen becoming sophomores, adding weight, learning the system. There's a huge jump typically from year one to year two when you go to you know a coordinator who is skilled and good. That's just how it goes. Yeah, you, you're going to lose out on all of the bump that you would get from a year two guy. All of it gone. Okay. Um, felt like there's like some panic again in Gator Nation. Now, part of the news, we haven't gotten to the news. We had two high-profile decommits, Waller and Mack, who are decently rated guys. Um, rumors more on the way. Uh, yeah, felt like even with the result of a loss at LSU, which is probably expected that there's some panic. Is your hand hovering over the panic button? Are you far away from the panic button? Where are you at? I'm always on the panic button with recruiting because it's a knife's edge, but that's also why you and I make a point to say, we'll see what happens when it's over. Yeah. We update you on the meta news. Here's where we are. And we say, we'll see what happens when it's over. And that's what we're going to say right now. And what matters to me is what we said last time. There's a three-legged stool. There's two legs of this program I don't like right now. We don't have a winning culture. Maybe we have a culture that tries hard and plays hard. That's true. But uh, it I, might be a good culture. No, no, it's good. But I'm saying we have a winning culture yet. We have a culture where they're playing hard. That is positive. However, it's not winning. So you want a winning culture that also is sustainable. So that leg is not there yet. The second leg, obviously, which is on-field performance, is definitely not there yet. And the third leg, which is recruiting, was the one showing all the promise. And I had mentioned I'm at a 5 out of 10. If the recruiting goes to 15th or 20th, the three-year test is going to be almost certainly a guaranteed fail. And I will be out. So this is everything right now. And we're going to see what happens. I don't know what's going to happen. I know the rumors are flying right now. I know people are panicking. I also know that recruits, especially this early in a program, often do not behave like you behave as a fan. They want money. They like the coaches. They like the atmosphere. They envision themselves there, and they think they will change it. We're still in that window. I think Billy can still preach that message to them. Hey, look at Trey Wilson. He's changing our team. What if we have six of you, and there's six Trey Wilsons now? Are we winning? Oh, yeah, we're winning, coach. So we're going to see. But man, oh, man, if that goes south. Yeah, it feels very precarious. Bad. There's no other recourse. I guess if you feel like you need to do something, you can panic. But uh, I'm going to hold off on panicking currently. Okay, let's close the book on that. Let's talk about the results from week nine or week 10. Let's talk about it. Yeah, week 12 or I don't even know. I think it's week 11. Who can know? How are we this far into the season? How about that? I don't know. How's it almost Thanksgiving? That's crazy. All right, Arizona, UF grad Jed Fish. Mm. Mm -hmm. Keep an eye on him out there. We've mentioned him every year since he's been there. 
is losing to Colorado for portions of this game. Deion Sanders, again, looking solid and ultimately wins 34-31 where they run the final five minutes off the clock for a game-winning field goal as time expires. Yeah, if you're Arizona, any win is a good win, but this is a, a fun one for you for sure. Yeah, they're on fire. They've won four games in a row, I think, now. Miami at Florida State. Florida State favored by 14.5 this game right down to the wire. Florida State escapes with the win 27-20. Yeah, talk about a Jekyll and Hyde Miami team. I, I don't know what to get of them week to week. They were in this game. I mean, they started a freshman quarterback, Emory Williams. He's playing well. Breaks his arm at the end of the game. They throw the backup, well, the former starter, Van Dyke, comes in, throws a pick, they lose. But they're in this game the entire time. Yeah, they're in it. And it's one reason why I felt like and still feel like, you know, the Florida State and LSU game were our most winnable ones, oddly enough. And this Missouri one was the least winnable one. So I'm tipping my hand for this week. But the bright silver lining there is that this Florida State team, as we've continued to say, I think is an eminently beatable team. They're good. They are beatable. Number 22, Oklahoma State. This is wild. This is the it's weirdest a two-point favorite on the road against a UCF team that was winless in the conference, and all they did was just clap them 45-3. to Yeah, we. I said this is very strange that they're only a two-point favorite. Vegas knew something. I don't think they saw 45-3, to obviously, but, man, that is a weird result. Coming off the high of beating Oklahoma in the last bedlam, all the way down to the basement of losing 45-3 to UCF. That's why college footballs we love it and we hate it at the same time because it's just <laughs> manic. Auburn on the road at Arkansas. Speaking of loving and hating, the Arkansas team perhaps riding a high. You and I think they're at home. Auburn's not that good yet. All Auburn does is win 48-10, to 10, fueling rumors that Sam Pittman will be fired eminently. Man, <laughs> Auburn, I this feels like a – not that they won, but they just beat Arkansas so bad. Arkansas has been in every game. Every one for the most part. Everyone. Okay, there you go. I, I mean, it's 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 wild. Again, I think this is one thing we know for sure, though, is that is that Hugh Freeze, he's a good coach. Auburn, I think personally, has been very competitive this year, given a deficient roster that seemingly is as deficient as Florida's. However, they're finding some results here and there. We'll see what happens with them in the future. West Virginia on the road versus Oklahoma. I made a foolish decision to pick West Virginia with the points, and Oklahoma crushed them 59-20. Yeah, they looked great in this game. They looked like they did earlier on. They they put it all together. Yeah, too little too late, though. USC on the road against Oregon. Oregon wins a lower-scoring game, perhaps, 36-27. Yeah, you know, at the beginning of the game, Oregon basically scores in, like, two plays for two different touchdowns. It's like, man, they're going to put up 100 but that didn't happen. That's interesting. I don't I don't know. I didn't watch the second half of the game. That didn't. Perhaps the new DC adjusted in the second half. I did not get to see it either. Uh, obviously, if you're Caleb Williams and you're USC, also a reminder, this is why you watch sports and why it's awesome. Because before the year, it was like foregone conclusion. Caleb Williams is probably going to win the Heisman because USC is going to probably have one or two losses and he'll tear the whole world up. But now he's in the midst of a downfall season. That's why the sport's beautiful. Number 18, Utah. Still, for me, my most impressive team in the entire country this season. I don't even think it's close for me, actually. That's how impressive this team is. Gave Washington at Washington all they could possibly handle in this game before they go down 35-28 with a pig farmer at quarterback operating the offense. Yeah, I mean, this is weird, too. I mean, I think Utah had 28 points at halftime. They did. Scored nothing score in the second again, half. And Washington was only scored 11 in the second half. So yeah, it was very a very weird game, but Washington continues to get it done. They're getting it done, setting up what's going to be an epic rematch with Washington, Oregon. That's going to be something. Tennessee on the road to Mizzou. 
This should put fear into all of you. Yeah, it does. Where Mizzou wins 36-7. to Yeah, Tennessee has been really solid all year outside of a, a few results there. And yeah, Mizzou just busting this up. They look great in this game. Oof, man. Yikes. Number 10, Ole Miss at Georgia. Yikes. Getting a lot of Lane Kiffin texts. Of course, in our hiring sweepstakes, we had Billy Napier number one because of the three-year test, because of the positive recruiting trend. He had his own question marks. We had Lane Kiffin as our wild card at number two because of his own question marks, because of his lack of elite recruiting, despite the fact that some people think he is. He's not data-wise. And obviously that he's coached a lot of places but hasn't been able to win. Now, what he's doing at Ole Miss is excellent. Oh, yeah. And some people, of course, thought maybe they'd be close to Georgia. And a lot of you thought Georgia was not going to be good this year. And as I said early in the year, I don't care what happens to Georgia. They're going to be excellent. They're going to figure it out. Don't sleep on them. Hate it, but it's true. And all they did is win 52-17. to 17. Ugh. I mean, this game was done early. I mean, the Ole Miss comes out and scores pretty quickly early on, and then nothing. Nothing. And I mean, Georgia's just, you have to give credit where credit is due. I mean, they, not only are they recruiting elite talent, right? They're, they're like a factory of keeping these guys consistent. You look at Alabama, Alabama's having churn. They're having difficulty keeping their defense consistent. They're having some issues, but not Georgia. It is like every single year now for three straight years, they are just an absolute death machine. All right. Enough, enough. enough. And it's painful, but man, do they have that junk rolling? We can only hope they lose somehow. Number three, Michigan, amidst the uh, the old brouhaha of cheating, no Jim Harbaugh on the sidelines, gets it done versus Penn State 24-15, to a game where Penn State, once again, totally anemic on offense, tried to mount a late charge but could not get enough. Yeah, they fire their offensive coordinator after this game. I mean, they're, they're two games against the best teams on their schedule. They can't do anything. Can't do anything. And now James Franklin, a remarkable 1-12. and versus the AP top, you know, I think it's 25 maybe, even a top 10 maybe, but the top teams that he's faced in his career there. Yeah, I mean, their talent is just not there yet. I mean, I think a new OC would help them for sure. Yeah, clearly, they're not good I in mean, production. The lack of explosive plays, they've been such a storyline early on, certainly, not even just explosive plays, any kind of plays. They, they could not throw the ball at all. And Michigan knew that they had no hope. Michigan ran the ball 30-something straight times. Because they knew that Penn State couldn't do anything. Penn State scores way late. I mean, they only had, I guess, seven for a long time. It's a classic Big Ten rock fight. Most of the games this year have been that way. It's hard to gauge how good the Big Ten is because are the defenses truly that excellent? Or is it that no one can play offense well? In the SEC, it's the opposite. The SEC defenses are so bad, generally speaking. It's it's, I think it's, it's a, a wild year. Both there, but yeah. I think you're right. And obviously, to play good offense is important here, right? Good offense is not all scheme. It's not all players. You got to have both. Look at the look at the Patriots. Is Bill Belichick an idiot and the worst coach ever? Yes. No. <laughs> Might be, but also, is he the best coach ever? Maybe <laughs> not right. anymore. But more importantly. It takes everyone. I just yeah. want to keep saying that. It's a team sport. It's a team sport with the coaches and the players unified together. You have to have all of it. If you overvalue one above the other significantly, you're not going to get the right result. That's the beauty of these sports. It takes everybody working together. It's why I love football. All right, fewer results here. Texas Tech beats Kansas 16 to 13. Texas beats TCU 29-26. I mean, Texas Almost collapsed. They're up like 20. Dude, they are flirting, but they keep finding ways to win, which is un-Texas-like. 
And North Carolina beat Duke in double OT 47-45. Oh, man. Duke's had a season of like almost greatness, and they just keep snatching some ills. Yeah, I mean, that that was a valiant effort by them. Valiant. In that game. Valiant. They had it won. They had the game won. They were the better team in regulation and did not get the win. I watched a, a good bit of this Bama-Kentucky game just because uh, nothing else was on at the moment. But Bama beats Kentucky 49-21. I mean, just absolutely hammering them. We said it. We said it after we lost. This Kentucky <laughs> team sucks. I hate that everyone's going to blow them up. And they did, and they, they suck. suck. But Bama has quietly turned into an excellent team. They're going to get a chance to face Georgia here at the end. Yeah, I guess that Nick Saban wasn't done after all. And that's, you know, it's, it's frustrating for you and I, Alan, because both of us do lean more on the systematic side of thinking. We're long-term thinkers in general, like plant your seeds today. Mm-hmm. Water your, water your turf, take care of it. And you know, it'll, it'll grow and let it grow at its level and take care of it. And it'll grow. We believe in that methodology in life, especially. And in football, you have to mix some of that because you do need results sooner. But man, do we live in a world that is just way too reactionary in general. Like, just like let some things play out for a second before you decide you know for sure what's happening. And Jalen Miller looks really dangerous. So we'll, we'll very dangerous. How Georgia handles him. All right, South Carolina over Vandy, forty-seven to six. I mean, South Carolina wakes up and drops almost fifty. Vandy, thank God for Vandy for a lot of his SEC teams. <laughs> it's like you feel good about yourself for one week. Yeah, I was not thankful for them last year. All right, <laughs> Texas A and M, Mississippi State. A&M wins 51 to 10, but somehow both coaches are fired after this. How game. great is that? <laughs> it's great. It's awesome. I mean, yeah, both fired. Jimbo Fisher. Yeah. Let's talk $76 million dollar buyout. I mean, it's outrageous. It's outrageous. Un- he gets like 16 million or something within the next 30 days. Yeah. And then he gets seven plus million a year for the next eight years. I mean, it's. It's wild. I mean, college football has got to figure this out. That is just insane use of resources, right? And again, we had Scott Strickland on this episode, and and still, really, I I do not feel like I've had a satisfactory conversation or explanation from anyone about why people do this. And I know the answer is, well, the market says so. I don't say so. If I'm an AD, I have a chance to control the market. And to me, Alan, is it not simple enough to tell your head coach, hey, look, I'll hire you. I will put in your contract with incentives that I will pay you a dollar more than whoever is getting paid the most amount of money as an annual salary. I will guarantee I will do that if you hit these benchmarks. So you will always be paid well. And I'm not going to give you a buyout because I will also guarantee that if an NFL team comes looking for you and they offer you X amount of dollars per year, I will give you one more dollar than that. Period. Done. Why are we giving these coaches buyouts? The likelihood is that they fail. What the heck are we doing? What are we doing? It's sick, it's wrong, it's disgusting, it's a horrible use of funds, and somebody's got to stop it. Because the reason that you can't fire coaches in college football because they have astronomical buyouts does not exist in any other sport anywhere. It's unparalleled. It's stupid. Yeah, and tough deal for Zach Arnett, the Mississippi State coach. I mean, it walks into an almost impossible situation. And they weren't a total train wreck for most of this year. But I guess they want to like just start over, which is fine. But that's just a tough. Yeah, that hiring we thought was, you know, we thought that was interesting in general. Well, just I mean, but what were they going to do is the whole point. So I think they probably just felt like let's punt for one year was probably always their plan. Hey, if you do a hero job, we're going to give it to you. It felt to me like an interim thing, like hold the ship fast. And and now I think they know they enter the coaching cycle and perhaps go after tough. Perhaps go after Dan Mullen again. Who knows? All right, there you go. Okay. 
Tell us about Daytona, Steve. Did he do it this week? He did not. He went down 20 bucks this week. Funds are at 153.86. The two teams that did in his parlay is Kansas, which just, you know, takes an L after a fantastic win. He had him as a favorite, and then he had, unfortunately, Oklahoma State, which gets murdered by I don't know how you could have predicted that. What do you do with that one? All right, some coaching corners. Thank you for submitting these. Got some good ones here. The Packers played a game against the Steelers where thankfully the Steelers won because I had the Steelers in my Survivor League and we are deep into the league. So you have to pick teams like the Steelers versus the Packers. But they are kicking a field goal on the 12-yard line. It's fourth and nine. Plenty of time in the game. There's 10 minutes left in the fourth quarter. Still plenty of time left. 17-13. Do you like this on fourth and nine or do you want to go for it? Because the rule of scores, of course, you know, would tell you you're still within one score. Does a field goal really help you? What do you want to do there? Fourth and nine. Fourth and nine. Yard line. Yeah, that's tough. Yeah, I think I definitely kicked the field goal for sure every time. I do too. The EV of that individual play swings in favor of the actual field goal because of how far that fourth down is and the likelihood that you make that fourth down. So I think there you say there's plenty of time in the game left. I have to get a stop anyway. To win the game, I got to get a stop. To get back in the game, I got to get a stop. And that gives me a chance to win with just one more field goal. Now, if it's shorter... Being a rule of scores person, you know, I think you can start to begin to debate whether that's worth it. But even then, you can't outright win the game on that drive. And there's still enough time in the game where I think you can you can finesse that depending on how things are going. All right. Penn State was trailing Michigan, as we know, 24 to 9. Scored a touchdown that cut the lead to nine points. James Franklin, with two minutes left then in the game, decides to go for a two-point conversion instead of kicking an extra point to make it an eight-point game. There's been tons of debate about this decision. Would you, Alan, have kicked the extra point or gone for two here? There's a lot of math here. Why don't you go first? What do you mean? You have to look at the math. His He wrote his own opinion out here where he felt like it seems like Franklin's decision is correct because what I'm going to call of optionality. You get more information if you go for it and get it or don't get it. You know exactly what you need. Then also mentions the crux of this being, but how much essentially of the human element matters and how much of this matters with time left. So where are you with this? Just in general. Yeah, I don't know. I don't hate it. Um, This is, I felt like (laughs) you're just rearranging ships on the Titanic or deck chairs on the Titanic, ships on the Titanic, Uh, that it wasn't going to matter anyway. I think the two-point conversion here is fine if it does give you that kind of optionality that you know is being suggested here. But also, you keep the game closer. You keep game pressure if you just kick the extra point. Yeah, I do not like that decision at all because, of course, I am a rule of one scores guy. I want to be, I want to be in the rule of scores. I want to be within one score to put pressure on my opponent. The human element looms very large here. If I am the opposing quarterback and I get the ball with two minutes left and I am up nine, I feel good. I feel like I've won the game barring an epic collapse. If I am up eight, I feel pressure, tons of pressure to make this work. And that is why in that case, as a head coach, I think you have to look at the human element and say, how can I most apply pressure to them? Which, of course, is the premise of game theory in and of itself. That's why game theory is so great. It's not always just what is the positive EV of the cold, hard math of something. It's also the expected value of what your human opponent is going to do. And that allows you to say, if I know they're going to do this and I go pressure on them, they feel that, then I'm going to do that in college football. You definitely want to do that. All right, Cincinnati-Houston in the fourth quarter. Since he's up 24-14, to this is college football, not the NFL. 
It's fourth and two on the Houston 31. Houston has no timeouts. No timeouts left. Fourth and two. There's 130 left in the game. If Cincy gets the first down, they win the game outright. Instead, since he takes a delay game and punts the football, they do win the football game. They get an INT after the punt and they win. Would you punt or go for this on fourth and two? I think I'd definitely go for it. You're ending the game by picking up two yards there. Also, obviously, yeah, 100% go. But also, what's your punt going to be? 15 yards, 20 yards max net on that? And you punt the ball. What are you doing? Yeah, I don't know. I, I was go trying to that. come up with win the, the game. other side of it. On the 31, I guess you take a you know five yards back there, but try to give yourself more space but i even then it's not worth it like you can win the game outright well, yeah. otherwise they still have to score a touchdown and a field goal against you they still have to go 40 45 yards to like even a field goal being the most conservative yes. thing you could possibly do that is it that is right so there it is those are your coaching corners for this past weekend all right let's thank a few patrons frank ivan infinger thomas c hubner tony sullivan michael cook yarborough will cackless bud taylor james ridge Clay, Clint Patterson, Jeremy Lee, Donnie Thomas, Nick Shields, Dono Dan McLeod. Oh, what a name, Dono Dan. <laughs> Sean Chimilarski, Evan Milch, Dustin Santos, Brad Carlin, Nick Patchelor, Kathy Chimilarski, got both of them in there. Brian O'Connor, Bryant Roberts, John Stewart, Rebel Gator, Ryan Ashley, Matt Colbert, David Kaplan, JDH5484, Joe Gorell, Brittany Brafford, Alan Dunbar, Bear the Bull, Barry Jenkins, there he is. There he Colin is. McLeod, Ishan Shukla, Alex Marty, Mike, looks like probably Mike O'Neill, Jeremy Selbst, Bill Merkel, Tink Tock Timmy, Jim's Dial, Victor Redmond, Kevin Feely, Eric Yeary, what's up, buddy? Zach Foster, Jim Sicard, Peter Verona, Mark Peterson, Elizabeth, Bruno Simon Costa, and Matthew McLeod. That is great by you. It's a great list. Excellent work. What's also great, are some live reads. Yeah, AG1. Yeah, back. Back in the saddle. AG1 supporting the pod this year. We appreciate you, AG1. Thank you. AG1 is a foundation, a foundational nutritional supplement that supports your entire body's health. Of course, we got our start with AG1 this season on the podcast. I never had it until then. I've learned a few important things about it. Most importantly, it really is an all-in-one nutritional supplement. That's really important. Hence, the foundational nutritional supplement is not just a greens drink. It is seemingly expensive compared to other green strength because it is not just a green strength. But if you are looking for a one-stop shop that you can take just in the morning or anytime you want during the day one time, AG1 is an excellent choice for you. It is comprehensive. And again, it will complete your supplement routine. You can try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your very first purchase. Simply go to drinkag1.com slash GNFP. That's drinkag1.com slash GNFP. Check it out today. Links for all of these will be in the description. All right, what can we say about Amira Custom Homes today, Alan? Sounds great. What we can say is this, is that we talked a lot about strategy, coaching staffs, hiring, firing, etc. If you want a process that is much smoother than Florida football's rebuild, you can hire Corey Amira at Amira Custom Homes. You're not going to deal with any of the issues, asking all the questions of are we having issues with this, that, or the other. You are going to have a plan that pans out exactly as you set it up to pan out. It will be the optimal rebuild, if you will. 
Corey Amira himself has tons of experience. He's a second-generation contractor. He spent his entire life working construction, and he is ready to help you execute the right game plan for your family's custom home. You can check out his previous custom builds at amiracustomhomes.com. You can also contact him directly there. Once again, that is amiracustomhomes.com. And lastly, Alan, I'm oh, going to give, give, give this one to you. Uh, this, this is yeah. This is uh, this is uh, this is our who we called stat guy is what we should call him on the pod himself. He's been on the pod multiple times, hitting up stats. One of our friends, very sharp guy, hopping in for his first uh, his first ever live read here. All right. So this is one I want everyone listen up for this one. Okay. So Josh, our friend Josh Duty, is a salary negotiation coach for high earners, and he's worked with all types of experienced professionals to optimize their job offers from Fortune 5 companies like Google to startups to hospitals and everything in between. If you're a high earner who's making a move soon, you should absolutely work with Josh to negotiate your job offer to make sure that when you put your head on the pillow after that first day or your new job, you know that you didn't leave anything on the table and that your compensation package is as good as it can be. You can find Josh Judy over at fearlesssalarynegotiation.com. Click the Get One-on-One Help button to learn more about his coaching offering and make sure to tell him that you heard about him on the pod. FearlessSalaryNegotiation.com is where to go when you want to be absolutely sure you're getting paid what you're worth. So we know Josh super well. The math on this is simple. If he helps you get a ton more money in that first year, it's going to be worth it for like a lifetime. This is like a slam dunk. If you're if you're negotiating a job offer or if you're wondering if you should get in touch with him. Like I've seen this up close over and over with people who are just supremely satisfied that they, you know, went with him. So there you go. FearlessSouthernNegotiation.com. There it is. And yeah, he deals with a lot of significant uh, dollar values as well. And a lot of our listeners are in the same boat. Uh, so, you know, if you're if you're looking at taking a job that's paying you, you know, significant amounts of money, he has negotiated million, $2 million plus contracts with big companies you've heard of like Apple, Google, Tesla, and a whole bunch of others that you haven't from boutiques to, again, major companies. But very experienced guy, perhaps the world's leader in salary negotiation. That is actually a real fact. He's written a book on the subject himself. Uh, but at any rate, if that is you and you're in the market and you're either negotiating with your current employer or, of course, you are looking at leaving, as Alan said, he's the guy. Check him out. So, dude, okay. Oh, man. Let's talk about the Missouri Tigers. Long been a thorn in my side. They are number 11. They are 8-2. and two. And they are favored by 11 and a half. So stiff test. I, this has been, I think, Florida's haunted mansion here. They go to Columbia and just die more often than I care to admit. Okay. Their two losses are to LSU 49-39 and Georgia 30-21. Two very competitive games. Again, LSU just puts up 50 on everybody. Um, but this is a very good team coming off a very impressive win against Tennessee. But before we break it all down, you guys know what time it is. It's time for Big Homie's Culture Corner. James, why don't you tell us about mascot? All right, Big Homie opens this segment by telling us it's another Tiger mascot with ties to the Civil War era. According to the school's website, the nickname Tigers traces its origin to the Civil War period. Thank you for doubling that information, Big Homie. At that time, plundering guerrilla bands habitually raided small towns and Columbia people constantly feared an attack. Such organizations as temporary home guards and vigilance companies banded together to fight off any possible forays. The town's preparedness discouraged any guerrilla activity, 
and the protecting organization began to disband in 1854. However, it was rumored that a guerrilla band led by the notorious Bill Anderson intended to sack the town. Quickly organized was an armed guard of Columbia citizens who built a blockhouse and fortified the old courthouse in the center of town. This company was called the Missouri Tigers. The marauders never came. The reputation of the intrepid Tigers presumably traveled abroad, and Anderson's gang detoured around Columbia, thanks to these very Missouri Tigers. Soon after Missouri's first football team was organized in 1890, the athletic committee adopted the nickname Tiger, an official recognition of those Civil War defenders. Their spirit is now embodied in the MU mascot, Truman the Tiger. The Tiger was named Truman in 1984 because of a contest held by the cheerleaders. Previously, Missouri had two mascots, a male and a female, but neither one of them actually had a name or identity. So there you go. Truman the Tiger. Okay, homecoming. So apparently Missouri invented homecoming? Well, really? Man, this is apparently. a fact. Okay. Before the 1911 season, Missouri's conference at the time, the Missouri Valley Intercollegiate Athletic Association, passed a rule stating that teams had to play conference games in a home-and-home format on campus. That meant the annual border war between Kansas and Missouri would no longer be held in Kansas City. Afraid of a poor turnout by his fan base, Missouri's athletic coach and ath- football coach and athletic director, Charlie Chester Brewer, decided to be in a, begin a campaign asking alumni to come home. The idea worked, drawing over 9,000 fans to the rivalry game. The tradition has obviously spread and expanded since then. There you go. How about that? All right, let's talk about the fans' reputation. We're busting in. All right, that was by request from Big Homie. That is a a Twitter video, <laughs> Twitter rap video and sing-along by the Missouri students. There are many of them in the video. We play just a snippet of it there for you, but of course, <laughs> you can watch it on your that own. That's a real thing. Big Homie didn't write that. That is not made up. That's a real thing. It exists on the internet itself. All right, fan reputation then. This noon-loving, pasty-faced fan base is the most nondescript in the conference. I dare you to watch any videos or Google image the fan base and then try to discern one generic looking (laughs) student from another. It's basically a lineup of unremarkable Gen Z farmers wearing black and yellow overalls. Even Iowa produced the American Gothic painting. (laughs) That's a nice random scud there. Seriously, farming is their thing and they don't even do it well. They don't even crack the top five in any major cash crop category. <laughs> They're like the kid in FIFA who really wanted to raise the pig. FFA. Oh, sorry, future FFA. Yes, yes, Future Farmers of America. Correct. You like how I just put the I in there in my own world? But could never get it to gain enough weight to sell at auction, which would be tragic. So his dad sat in the audience and pity bid on it so his son would not be humiliated that he could not sell his pig. It's bad enough this Big 12 trash made its way into the SEC East and immediately started winning the division when the perennial powers were experiencing down years. Now they seem to have a decent coach who recruits well, question mark. Great. What a joy. Uh, there you go. So big homie, again, he's, he doesn't feel a lot of love for a lot of the other fan bases I'm with out in the SEC. But Missouri has definitely been a house of horrors uh, for us, Allen, since they joined the conference. And they have been far more successful, I think, than anybody would have imagined when they joined the SEC. 
So I hope you enjoyed that little audio drop there from the big homie. I got a good laugh out of it. Okay. The coaching staff, Eli Drinkwitz, his fourth season there. Uh, they by, This is by far their most successful season. Um, their offensive coordinator is Kirby Moore. It's his first season. He's from Fresno State. You know, we talked about Eli Drinkwitz stepping down from play calling this year. And their D.C. Blake Baker, his second year. Uh, D.J. Smith has been there since 2019, his second season as the co-D.C. All right. The DKI is back. All right. You, the UFO versus... Missouri D, advantage Missouri. The UFD versus Missouri O, advantage Missouri. So both advantages there for Missouri. This is a remark right here. This is this tells you everything about Missouri's team this year. Okay. Missouri's first teamers have 3.43 uh, average years of experience. I Which assume. is out of four. That's, yeah. that's a heavily experienced football team. Yeah. UF's ones have... 2.28. And U.S. defense has two years mm-hmm. of experience of their ones. So that's significant. Yeah, Missouri has 21 super seniors. So define this as anyone from recruiting class of 2019 or earlier in the starting 44. So half of their players basically are beyond senior mm-hmm. age. So that is helpful when you're a mid-tier team trying to be better. It does, and Florida has eight of them. Mm. Eight versus 21. So again, just because your team is young does not give you a permanent excuse not to be good, but it is also a legit contextual fact. All right. Offensive personnel here. Brady Cook, the QB, is having a nice year. 2,700 yards, 67.8 completion rate, 84% rate catchable ball, 7 TDs, 6 picks. Uh, he also has 81 carries and 228 yards, so he will run it some too, 6 TDs. Cody Schrader, the running back, who is – just beasting people right now already 1100 yards 5.7 yards per carry 11 touchdowns 18 percent broken ta- missed tackle rate i mean he had a monster game against tennessee and then their probably most talented player their wide receiver luther burden the third 67 receptions 974 yards and eight tds so they have some stars on offense those guys carry the load for them significantly well and how about cody schrader if you've never heard of him yeah you're going to in this broadcast, but let me just tell you for a second what this walk on walk on last year did. He was a transfer from the powerhouse that is Truman State. Truman the Tiger. Truman yep. State was meant to be. Uh, at any rate, he came in from basically nowhere and has now gone on to already rush for a thousand yards. D two from D two to major SEC running back. Very impressive. All right, scouting report-wise, here you go. They 47% pass, 53% run. And here are the stats you want to know. Yards per play, 15th. Points per play, 26th. Third down percentage, 36th. Red zone, number one. Number one. Yards per rush, a surprisingly not good, 68th. 68th, despite the fact they're running the ball, you know, total yardage-wise pretty well. It's high volume more so than high quality. Yards per pass, though, eighth. That's been the engine of their offense. They are giving up sacks at about the 61st um, rate in the country and the interceptions 22nd. So they don't throw a lot of picks. They're above average in giving up sacks. Success rate-wise, this tells the story. Overall, they're the 19th best offense in the country. 57th in explosiveness. So they're above average, but not great. Standard downs, 29th. Passing downs, 13th. So excelling on passing downs. Uh, running plays 51st again the weakness is their ability to run the football and passing plays 10th so really excelling passing wise 
Play action, 23% of the time, they're excellent at it. Pre-snap motions, a whopping 42% of the time, and they're good at it with a 109 QB rating. They rarely run RPOs, just 4% of their plays. When they do, they're excellent at it with a QB rating of 130. They offer a very low pressure rate to opponents of just 23%. But, and here's the stat that's interesting, their O-line does well in pass pro, not so well in run blocking. The running backs are hit at the line 45% of the time. So the fact that Schrader is rushing as well as he is with that hit at the line percentage is actually pretty remarkable, uh, but that kind of helps explain their stats and where they are at. Lastly, Allen, they are mostly a zone team, but they will run some gap runs. They're passing versus man defenses, 106 rating with a 46% completion percentage, which tells you that when they do hit you in man, they are hitting you with significant chunk yardage, not consistent completions. They are excelling versus cover zero and cover one man. And just like LSU, they are struggling versus cover two man. So that's a big difference and a chance for Florida, again, to attempt to play more cover two. They're offering a 39% completion rate and a 52 rating for the passer. Versus zone, they are solid versus really all zones they are solid. 73% completion rate and 100 rating cover three, just slightly worse. Versus pressures, Five-man pressures, which Florida likes to bring, they are solid against. Six-man, they are extremely solid. And seven-man, albeit a small sample size, they have struggled mightily. So here's another chance for Florida to buckle down and say, you know what, let's follow some stats here. Let's definitely not send six. And ideally, let's try and send seven a couple times. 45% of their passes are five yards or less, even, even fewer than LSU, Allen. They do not throw the ball behind the line of scrimmage or short as often as other teams do. Their best passing distances are between 15 and 20 yards and 35 air yards or further. So they are chunk yardaging their passing plays for the most part. That's where they're actually most comfortable completing those balls. Yeah, and Luther Burden is super dangerous everywhere on the field. Um, he can take a ball that's five yards and you know turn it into a huge gain and can take the top off a of defense. So Florida's definitely going to have to account for him. He's been one of the better players in the SEC. Yeah, he's excellent. They also use him underneath. So they have two other guys that they'll use like almost exclusively as like vertical threats. So they have like a significant uh, A dot, which is average depth of target, whereas Burdens is lower only because you mentioned it. They will east-west him, north-south him. They'll put him everywhere. But they have been very successful on those longer air yards plays. So they are in some ways similar to LSU's offense. If you if these stats sound familiar, they are they are kind of similar to how some of these um, kind of macro stats break down. Game plan-wise for this one, of course, Florida did not follow the one I was hoping for last week, but this time they are a better passing team than a running team. So clearly we have to stop these deeper passes. I think at this point we need to acknowledge the defense cannot be trusted to run the scheme that Coach Ham wants to run this season. So we should, in my opinion, therefore keep a lid on this team as much as possible. Play a lot of cover four. If they're offering us a 45% hit rate at the line, we can probably count on getting some stops just by having a few one or two yard gains naturally in the run game. Make them drive. Do not allow them to complete these big passes they want to complete and hope to trade yards for field goals. That's the trade we'll make. We're not going to get as many three and outs, but we're going to trade yards for field goals. When you do play man, which I think Florida should at times, only play cover two man. Let's make that happen this time. If you bring pressure... Let's bring the house with seven, at least the majority of the time, because again, I think that is what the numbers would indicate is best. And Florida's own numbers would indicate we have not been very successful bringing pressure with five. So why do it versus a team that is good at it? Yeah, that'll be interesting. We've been trying to be a boom and bust team. And as JT Raymond says, mostly we've busted and not a lot of boom. 
Although this team can, you know, create a few negative yards in the run game. Uh, so, yeah, this is this is going to be a struggle for Florida, I think, to keep up. Um, and they don't play well in this environment. This is going to be at night. It's going to be cold, presumably. So we'll see how Florida handles that in general. Let's talk about the defensive personnel for Missouri. Defensive lineman Darius Robinson, 23 tackles. Six tackles for loss and six and a half sacks. Familiar name, painful transfer here. Tyron Hopper, 52 tackles, seven tackles for loss and three sacks. NDB Chris Abrams drain, 33 tackles, four picks, uh, four passes deflected. Um, So this isn't a unit that is flashy, but they are overall like quite a good unit. Yeah, they are. They're solid. You know, I think they're a respectable unit. Uh, obviously, they get good linebacker play, especially out of Hopper, and that just hurts my soul every time I say that. You know, a guy we identified the very first time he popped on film, and he's not ours, uh, which is frustrating. As far as the scouting report goes, the yards per play they allow, and all of these stats are what they allow. They are 52nd points per play, 48th, third down, 78th. There's a weakness. Red zone, 66th. Yards per rush, 46. Yards per pass, 49. So kind of equal with how they stop teams. Sacks, they're 33rd. Like a typical Missouri team, they generate some pressure. Interceptions, they're 71st. So middling there. Overall, the success rate tells the story of the defense more accurately. Overall, they are 27th in success rate. Explosiveness, 98th. So not generating a lot of explosive plays, but they are consistent. Standard downs, 29th. Passing downs, 30th. Running plays, 13th. Passing plays, 52nd so they are more vulnerable to the pass than they are the run they play man 31 percent of the time which is pretty high they offer a 45 percent completion rating of 59.1 passer rating so they're a very good man team missouri tends to be a very good man team they play zone uh, not quite as competently a 67 percent comp rate with a 105 rating so they are what i would consider to be a rather poor zone team that's largely why i think teams have exploited them in the past allen is when they do play zone, they are gettable. They bring pressure an extremely high 36% of the time. I'm sorry, they get pressure 36% of the time, which is a pretty solid rate. They bring pressure 33% and get pressure 42% out of that. So basically, once again, it's telling you that when they actually bring extra bodies, they're not getting a significant boost in pressure. They're generally just getting pressure, whether they're bringing three, four, five, six, or seven, all at about the same rate. They do... Uh, excel at bringing six-man pressures. So if I'm Florida, I would expect to get a few six-man pressures in this game. They're very good at it. They are best at dropping eight. That's their best defense of all. They're very, very good at dropping eight despite their zone is not great. Uh, and they're worst with four-man. So it's kind of funny. If you're Missouri's defensive coordinator, your base defense where you're typically going to bring four guys has been your worst defense. And just sending three guys, which for most teams tends to be middling, is actually extremely good for them. So how that pans in for Florida, uh, I think will be of interest. They're below average versus play action and motion plays, which also sets up well for Florida since that's a heavy feature of our offense. The game plan here for me again is Florida's offense is going to do what it does as we've seen it from here now. It's not worth really talking about schematically things that we might do differently or won't do differently. What matters is I think we we keep phoning home to ET. <laughs> Let's try to get 50 plus percent touches to these guys. This defense will offer some opportunities to you in theory, but they are far more difficult to move the ball on than any defense Florida's faced for quite some time this season, uh, not counting Georgia. Of course, Georgia's always going to be in its own category. They're not at that level, but they will offer a significant challenge. Yeah, so I said not Florida. flashy, but they'll get the job done. And especially with the way this offense is cooking, that's been plenty good enough 
to win games. You Correct. Know, they got cooked by LSU, but as I said, everybody gets cooked by LSU. That's right, and that's, that's an important takeaway. Is LSU scored 49 points on this Missouri defense that you just heard me say is overall 27th. This had a lot of nice results to shut down Tennessee completely. They got blasted by LSU, so maybe they should fire their DC too. I don't know. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Florida's defense has been terrible. Don't get me wrong. But regardless, this is going to be a challenge for Florida's offense. Mm-hmm. This is going to be a significant, significant challenge for them. So the categories here, special teams advantage Missouri, penalties advantage Florida. That's nice. Turnover margin advantage Missouri, and time possession advantage Florida. Um, Kingsley did not play in this game, the last game. Um, kind of last-minute scratch. He's been obviously limited the entire year. I think he'll be questionable moving forward. No other injury notifications that we either knew about during the game or are available to us now. All right, keys to the game. Why don't you go first? All right, I've got I've got a I've got a really fun one. Yeah, doozy here. I've doozy on the defense. I've never used this one before, but it feels totally right. So I want us to obviously play a lot of cover four mm-hmm. and sit back and just be clowns and absorb body blows <laughs> until they get in the red zone, which therefore means that I want the defense. This is nuts. But aside from getting other kinds of stops, I think the defense actually needs to allow, get ready for this, three plus drives of nine or more plays. It's really important. <laughs> Where the- Get ready. Yeah, get ready for it. Where two of them result in field goals. <laughs> That's that, not made up. That's a real thing. This is a real thing. So we need to have long. They have long drives. Means we're keeping the ball in front of us. Mm-hmm. And the point is, if they do that, they're going to have some that, of course, score. But they're going to have others where they're their own worst enemy, and they they don't score. And then if we can trade two of those long ones where they're grinding it out, six minute drives, we stop them at the end. That's a there's a demoralizing effect there that will occur for a football team. I think that's the key to winning on defense. That's something I know. On offense, this is just how it is with Florida's football team. If you want to win competitive games against good opponents, you know what you have to do. And that is either score on first or second down on explosive plays or have a good third down conversion rate. So I'm going to give Florida the either or option here. I'm going to say that Florida is going to have to have four, right? Four plays. We're going to call this of 30-plus yards. I'm going big here. Okay. 30-plus yards on first or second down. So we have to have a lot of first or second down success here. Or we have to have a 48% third down conversion rate. Either one of those things is going to mean I think the offense is going to keep us in the game. Either one. You can take which one you want. You can be more methodical and you're just converting third downs. Great. I'll take that. Or you can be chunking big-time plays, which gets you points. Those are your two choices. There you go. What do you got? Wow, I know those are super. You got to get fun late in the season. You really got to. You really got to go for some fun keys. So Florida's actually been really good at converting in the red zone. Like most of Florida's drives in the red zone, we score either touchdown or field goal. We need to have a seventy-five percent touchdown rate in this game. We cannot kick field goals in the red zone. So if we get down there, we have to score. And, you know, Trace Mack's been a weapon. If he's going to be kicking like a 50-yarder, great. When we get down there, we have to score. <clears throat> and the good news as far as being able to do that a lot of the time, but they have to do that in this game for sure. Defensively, I'm tempted to do a lot of different things, right? So you can look at some Luther Burden stuff. You can look at some Cody Schrader yards per carry. 
I, I don't know. This Missouri team, I, I like what you like the direction you went with stopping explosive plays. Um, man, I feel like I envision us losing this game. It's Luther Burden just cooking us. So I'm going to say under two touchdowns for Luther Burden. Like if he's beating us on big plays, that means we probably lost this game. Okay, got it. It is time for your prediction. Mm, well, we know where I'm going with this one. This has been predetermined since the beginning of time. Uh, again, I this feels really tough for Florida. Really tough. So I do think we can score in this game, right? I think we'll keep it close for a little while. But I'm going to go 33-20, Missouri. I like that score a lot. I'm going to take Missouri at 35 and I'm going to take Florida at 17. Okay. Ugh, that's gross. But I do think, you know, real. I think Florida can score more than the 20 here. But they could. But they could. On the road. Will they? In the cold. I don't know. Yeah. It's tough. You know, it's just tough. The reality is Florida's defense, of course, oh, wildly disappointing. We had hoped for a top 50 D. It's not that. Questions abound as we discussed what to do with the defensive coordinator. Is he terrible? Am I an idiot for saying he has a high ceiling? I could be. I'll be the first to tell you if we find out that he is. I'm going to wait for more data. But certainly he could do a lot to help himself on the team to have some semblance of a decent performance mm-hmm. with the pieces that he has. Because Florida needs it. We need a win. We need to get to six wins. Yeah, Florida, if Florida really wins this game, they probably win like 27-24 with some turnovers Right. With some good offensive production and limiting Missouri. Yeah. I mean, and Florida can win this game. Once again, every week we say this. It's not made up fairy dust. Florida can win this football game. This is a winnable game for them. But they are playing a team that is more consistent, older, more experienced, and better than them. So it's going to take something different than what we have seen. All right, Alan. Speaking of different than what we have seen, you are one and three. Yeah. In our next segment here, two bits and a tail. And we're going to see if you can go two and three with the Missouri edition. Item number one. Here we go. Okay. The popular Netflix series, Ozarks, was filmed at Lake of the Ozarks, one hour south of Columbia, Missouri. Number two. The mascot is named Truman after U.S. President Harry S. Truman. Number three. As an insult to Kansas players and fans, when Missouri mentions KU in articles, the K is often printed in lowercase lettering. These are good ones. I like three them. good ones. All right, let's hear the rationale. Okay, um, Ozark. I mean, that is that is. Uh, I, do they film it there? That's the question, or is it like based there? The question is, it was filmed at Lake of the Ozarks. Popular Netflix series Ozark was filmed at mm-hmm. Lake of the Ozarks. And the middle one is named after Truman. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you told me our big you big homie told me a, that. The mascot was named in 1984. Would they in 1984 would they have named him after Harry Truman? That feels odd for a group of cheerleaders. Yeah, it could Tr- be. Harry Truman fans could be some yeah some history loving you know Trumanites. <laughs> and the last one is the KU. I, I love if that's true. That feels right that they would do that. Oh man. Is Hollywood going to film in Lake of the Ozarks, though? These are good questions you're asking. I love that I can't answer them. All right. Um, I'm going to go just from my, any bit of data that I have that I know they named the mascot in 1984, that that one's false. Man, 
Once again, if you would just go with your first <laughs> inkling, you'd have had it. It's the first one. Yes. Would they have really filmed it, as you said? And I feel like nowadays, the guess is like, where is almost anything filmed? Like Toronto. Or, or in Georgia. Yeah, or right? in Georgia. We're in Georgia where it's free tax credits for, the, for Hollywood. But yeah, right. they filmed it at Lake Lanier and Lake Alatoona, north of Atlanta. So one in four, uh, obviously, Harry Truman, for those of you history buffs, which Alan was a history major, already know, uh, Truman was from Missouri. So. Okay, well, that's, I didn't know that. Oh, there you go. So therefore, hence 1984, those, those Missouri-loving students that rap about their team uh, obviously wanted that to be the president. All right, so one in four, big homie owning Alan. Man, we have to retire this bit. On after. such a great segment here. It's really great. Alan's always kind of right there, but not right there at the same time. So it's a big L. Big L. Given to Alan from the big homie. All right, week 12 slate. What is on the slate this week? This is traditionally sort of prep week often for rivalry for the rivalry games, games yeah. but there are some games that are rivalry games being played. One notably with UCLA USC, which once decided the fate of Florida's future national championship mm. game, if you recall. So that one's kind of getting standalone treatment early here. But first up, number 16, Utah, and number 19, Arizona, who's been white hot at home. Another chance to knock off another ranked opponent at home if they can take care of Utah. What do you like here? I think I'll take Arizona. I'll just ride the heater. Arizona favored by one and a half. Utah feels like they're going to be too much for Arizona. Uh, I really want to pick Arizona because they're so cool. they're so good at home, but I'm going to have to take Utah here. Smart. North Carolina at Clemson. Clemson favored by six and a half in this one. I do not trust North Carolina at all. I mean, they've basically played even or been bad in the last six games, so I'm going to have to take Clemson. Yeah, six and a half and not seven slides me onto the Clemson train as well, but this game could obviously feel close, and trusting Clemson with six and a half feels feels dicey. UCLA on the road versus USC. Chip Kelly, Lincoln Riley, both unranked. Not I quite mean, as sexy as you think it might be. USC favored by six and a half. Yeah, UCLA coming off a loss to Arizona State. They Bad. played terribly. Bad. Oh, man. I wouldn't want to take anybody being favored, but this number in under seven, I'll go USC. Yeah, but just one touchdown at home. I'm going to take USC as well, but that that's one I'd stay away from. Kentucky favored by just one and a half at South Carolina. South Carolina, are they a little frisky after last week? I don't know. They put up some points on the board against Vanderbilt. Maybe they're feeling their oats. I think they can beat this Kentucky team. I'm going to take South Carolina at home. Yeah, I'm going to take South Carolina as well. I'm going to trust in the late season heroics of uh, of South Carolina and Shane Beamer to okay. kind of get things rolling, see what happens if they do it again two years in a row. Number nine, Louisville, favored by just one at Miami. Yeah, is this low? I don't know because Miami, do they care anymore? They just lost to Florida State. I don't, I don't know. It's hard to, hard to figure out. I'll go Louisville if this is just think they're, you think they're going to win the game, which I guess they will. You think they will, but Louisville on the road. Are yeah, they, it's not. I are, wouldn't. Are they trustable? No, they're not. But they. Miami's not trustable. They're Miami. be, Yeah, they're better. I mean, can you trust Miami to beat anybody? No. I'm going to go Louisville too. Number two, Michigan, favored by 19 on the road against Maryland. This is like the lowest spread of these big, big 10 teams. Uh, all the top ones favored heavily. Um, Michigan, that was an emotional game for them. But Maryland, man, they could keep this close, but I'll go Michigan. Yeah, Michigan, Ohio State on deck. First mm-hmm. up, Maryland could offer a challenge. They could also get drubbed. 19 does feel like a lot to me, though, and I have to always pick the homer pick with go Maryland. For it. You got burned last time you did that. I did, and I'll probably get burned again. But you know what? You got to do it. 
Number seven, Texas. All the Texas fans are nervous. What am I going to do? Favored by eight and a half over Iowa State at Iowa State. Your clones have been playing better they of late. Playing, they're actually in like the mix for the Big 12. Yes, they are. Uh, it's a big game. Yeah, let's go clones here. I'm with you with the clones. So Texas fans can rejoice. They're going to get a win now that I've picked against them. So you're welcome. Number 23, Kansas State, favored by seven on the road against a Kansas team who was riding high, now riding low, but yeah. a chance to ride high again with a win over their rival. I, I, is their QB going to be healthy in this game? I don't know. Kansas State's been a little bit of an enigma, but I'll take them here. I hate to do that. I love the Jayhawks. I like both these teams, actually. But Yeah, this is tricky. I'll take the home team here with Kansas. Uh, number five, Washington at Oregon State. This... Mm. is a game right here. The Beavs, super solid at home, and they are favored by one point, showing you how solid they are I'm going to go Beavs here. I think Washington finally just takes an L. They've been like flirting with disaster the last couple weeks. It is very, very hard to win at Oregon State, and therefore I'm also going to go with the Beavs. Number one, Georgia, favored. These lines are so fascinating with Georgia. After they just destroy, just kill both of these teams they played, their favorite line on the road against Tennessee, they beat Missouri. Keep in mind, that was kind of close, right? Missouri crushes Tennessee. What do you think the line here is? How about 10 and a half? Yeah, I don't... Curious question mark? It is, yes. It feels super shady. I mean, if it was 10, it would be like slam dunk 10 and a half. It's just only lose by 10. But I have to go Georgia, I guess. Oh, I'm I'm backing up the brinks. I know, it just one. feels super fishy. If I'm Daytona Steve, I would have bet all the money I had on this line, all of it, 153 on the line and let it ride. Because, well, I mean, this to me, I know it's on the road. I know it's Knoxville. I don't care. This Tennessee team has been shut down, by us included. Multiple teams have shut them down. Georgia shut them down last year when they were the best possible version of themselves. It's the same offense that's the broken down Toyota Prius and not a Ferrari. It's like, what are we doing here? To I don't me, know, but this line feels really weird. Really weird. I mean, I, to me, that just seems like free money, which means it's probably not. But again, if I'm Daytona, he does back it up. I'm all over that. And so speaking of Daytona, what does he do? Well, he is backing it up somewhat. I'd have gone all of it on one bet. He's got some of it here. He's got Georgia. He has a 10-point line when he got it on the road at Tennessee, 60 bucks to win 50 bucks, And he's parlaying Georgia, beating Tennessee by 10 taking UCLA and USC at the over at 65 and a half Florida, Missouri at the over at 59 and that's 10 bucks there to win 60. So he goes for a parlay and then he goes for a spread bet. So we'll see how he performs there. All right. That's going to bring us to the end of the show. Last but not least, I want a quick update on basketball as if the weekend was not disappointing enough. You called it a quad loss for yourself. Your Jags lost the Gators football team lost your fantasy football team lost and the Gator basketball team lost where Mm -hmm. At moments, it looked like, hey, this team can be solid. And then once again, the last minute of games for Florida basketball, seemingly no matter who's the coach in the past seven years, we don't even get a shot off. Yeah, it was a weird game. So Riley Kugel looked lost in this game. That's not good, by the way. He was, Florida's best player by far. Yeah, he, he was driving to the rim and throwing up shots off the backboard like he was a middle school player. It was terrible. Turning the ball over. And then Walter Clayton, who actually had a pretty good game, Made some nice plays, some nice shots. Basically misses a free throw, turns the ball over, fumbles the ball, and turns it over again. So, like, who had theoretically been Florida's most steady player, a guy who shot 97% of the free throw line last year. Feel good about him theoretically having the ball in his hands, and he just melts down. So, 
I don't know. Again, we don't know how good is Virginia. Is this like great that we played with them? Or are they just kind of average and we're just kind of average? So I That's know. kind of the thought right now. Right. But yeah, we don't know. Not enough to know. But obviously you want to get wins like that yep. to show that you're building. You score 70 versus a, a, a Tony Bennett team. Typically that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. That's enough. Uh, but obviously Florida's second line let them down at times. Really big plus minus differentials between the starters and the backups, which is going to be a problem I think all year this year. The silver lining here is Florida is missing perhaps its its second best player. Uh, he has one more suspension game to fulfill, and this will be a different team. So there is a bright cloud that maybe this will change. But, but if Kugel plays like that, Florida's not. That's be very the often. real key uh, is is who is Kugel going to be? He needs to be the guy that could be a mid first round pick in the NBA draft, not a guy who plays his way into a free agent pickup. You know, Florida needs him to be consistent. If so. you watch that tape, you'd be like, uh, "This guy doesn't even can't even play in Europe." Can't play at all. Yeah. Super athletic. But, you know, I, I think through two games, he hasn't looked perhaps polished as you want him to look. And that we're going to see. Look, Florida's in the midst of uh, historic, I feel like, moments of significance with football and basketball here. A lot of people's jobs will be tied into what happens in the next year or two or perhaps sooner. A lot of stuff on the line here for Florida. And we will be here to bring it to you, of course, from our cushy, safe positions <laughs> where we are not affiliated with anything official and we just get to talk about things much easier than having to actually do it. We always give respect to everyone who's trying to do it, including all the coaches themselves. It's very hard to do while of course giving you the analysis as always. Certainly I hope that you enjoyed this episode. We enjoyed bringing it to you. We look forward to being back with you next week where we once again, will hope that we get to say Florida one. And if they don't win, we'll still be here with you anyway. All right. Enjoy your week. Go Gators on behalf of Alan and myself till next week. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.